Blog Talk Radio. Why, hello there. Welcome to Carl's Cavern. I'll be your server tonight. As you peruse our fine beer and cheese menu, you will be hearing the owner of this fine establishment, Mr. Carl Kafer, as he gives you his wisdom and thought on whatever subject strikes him as important during the moment. So please, order your cheese and get ready for some enlightening conversation. Thank you very much for coming to Carl's Cavern. And always remember, cheese is the way of life. And here he is, coming up on the stage right now, the one, the only, our host, Carl Gabriel! Yay! Steven, I always have to chuckle at that. That is a great intro you put together. I really appreciate it. Uh, here we are, Carl's Cavern. Uh, first, like to uh, Steve, say hello. This is my producer and my my partner and just good old guy, Stephen Ronquillo. Say hello, Stephen. Hello. <laughs> and with us today, we've got a special guest as we uh, look at some of the most underseen and forgotten 1970s films. That uh, would be filmmaker, author, and film commentator. Daniel Kramer. Say hello, Daniel. Hey, hey. Hey. <laughs> so why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and, and what's going on with you? Oh, boy. Um, well, I, uh, well, as, uh, as you mentioned, I'm a, uh, a filmmaker. Um, I, um, I was going into the L.A. Uh, uh, release uh, and the, the, the run uh, for for my film uh, Overwhelm the Sky, but that was, of course, cut short by the COVID uh, uh, crisis. Um, so, uh, but uh, Carl, you actually saw it when it played in New York uh, for those few days. Um, but um, yeah, so I, I made a kind of a an epic film, I guess. It's uh, it runs almost three hours. It has intermission and has the roadshow trimmings. Uh, so that was, uh, yeah, we've been doing pretty well. And, and I could uh, say it's a very, very good film. And if you get a chance, you need to see it. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, gorgeous cinematography and, on that. Yeah. Seriously, yeah, Aaron, black and white, uh, just gorgeous. Yeah, Aaron, Aaron Hollander got a lot of, a lot of great uh, uh, reviews and uh, uh, notices for that. But uh, um, but yeah, so uh, I guess in a sense still promoting that film um, and um, working on uh, a couple literary projects. I'm in, I'm in the final uh, uh, stages for the book on uh, John McLean Silver. I'm doing another one on uh, 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 Henry Jaglum and uh, I'm, ter- I'm maybe looking at other things down the road as well. Uh, also been doing uh, DVD commentary tracks for uh, Kino Lorber Studio Classics, um, and uh, so upcoming releases, I, I'm doing about uh, uh, 15 in, uh, uh, in the coming couple of months, which I can't, uh, uh, I'm not allowed to, to talk about yet. But uh, um, uh, but the ones that are announced uh, currently that are coming down the pike, uh, there's Carl Rice's uh, Isadora, which is coming out uh, June 16th, and then uh, uh, and then I have. Uh, the Public Eye, which is the you know the Joe Pesci 
Ouija film uh, coming out uh, July 28th, along with the Mel Gibson uh, Sissy Spacek uh, film uh, The River by uh, Mark Rydell, which is also coming out on that date. Uh, and, um, yeah, I'll be doing uh, um, a number of others coming up for them. So, uh, yeah, it'll be pretty packed uh, uh, commentary schedule for them. That and I was, I was also uh, uh, supposed to be directing an, uh, an HBO series, a new a new HBO series. I would have been shooting right now, but alas. <laughs> oh, damn. But it'll, it'll yeah. get there. It's, it's coming yeah. for you, Dan. I, I swear to God, this, it's going to turn the corner, and you're going to do really, really well. Yeah. I don't think there's any questions it's weird, about it. Weird times. Weird times. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it is weird. I don't understand why they took Ouija and did a a crappy movie like The Public Eye instead of just doing a straight uh, biopic of him because he's more fascinating than that movie. That's probably the fun part of the commentary, wasn't it? Just talking about (laughs) Ouija's history. Well, I mean, I I did the the track with the... With the director of the film Howard Franklin, um, who was a, a really a mensch, and uh, I mean, I, I happen to uh, uh, champion that film um, myself, but uh, uh, they, but Ouija as a, as its own uh, subject could be a, 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 it's a uh, has mer- the the idea for an actual series or film about Ouija has its merits. Uh, there were there were issues that. Uh, uh, Prevented or preempted Howard from uh, pursuing that all the way, so, so he came up with the Burnsy character in uh, in that film. But uh, um, but yeah, I mean, you know, that, you know, the film does have its uh, its its kind of uh, uh, high profile uh, defenders. Roger Ebert gave it four out of four stars. Jonathan Rosenbaum uh, also went up to bat for it. So uh, you know, it didn't it it, it, it uh, is better than maybe it's forgotten. Uh, reputation might uh, uh, suggest, I think. Mm-hmm. And, and you do a lot of that, too. I mean, that's sort of what we're doing here as far as, uh, you know, looking at the films in the 70s and really talk about forgotten films and our, our favorite forgotten films. Now, the way that you sent me lists, you have uh, certain lists, and you have uh, uh, the new lease on life list, the film audits, and then you have runners up, and then we can get into our top ten. We have a lot to cover, so we need to start on this here. Uh, okay. And so pick pick one of the either the audits or the new lease on life, and explain what it is, and give us a list, and then uh, uh, Stephen and I will make any comments we want to make and move on from there. Okay. So um, yeah, I uh, this list does have, or my my kind of master list has its. Uh, Sections or chapters, you might say. So the you know, the new lease on on life section is basically um, films that uh, that maybe had once been uh, disrespected, uh, dismissed, or uh, forgotten, or uh, all the above that have now uh, um, gained a kind of uh, um, notoriety or cult following, or the, or they're you know they're just generally much better known than they they had ever been in the past, or they had gained a new, like the, you know, the critical uh, establishment uh, uh, had, uh, had, had a newfound uh, respect for these films. Uh, So in in that, on that list, of course, there's a a sorcerer uh, by 
by William Friedkin, which, you know, had been kind of the, you know, always listed among like the great flops of the, of the, of the, uh, of the decade. Now it's like, now it's like one of, now it's considered one of Friedkin's great masterworks, but back then it, it wasn't. And for the, for a couple decades after it was just like, Oh yeah, it's, yeah, this is one of Friedkin's worst movies. Now, now most people say it's, it's one of his best. So uh, uh, there's also Mikey and Nikki, which always had its, its uh, uh, critical defenders, but uh, wasn't uh, wasn't above board. It wasn't really emergent like a lot of the other films by by uh, Cassavetes in that era were. Uh, there's you know, the Friends of Eddie Coyle, which wasn't even on video for the longest time. I mean, there was no video release of uh, of, of Eddie Coyle, and up until uh, uh, Criterion uh, uh, put it out, I think in like '09 or uh, 2010, uh, and uh, it's it's amazing what a what a good you know Criterion release will do to a film's uh, to to a forgotten film's uh, reputation. Um, and then there's a uh, a new leaf, which uh, you know I, I think Elaine May in general is getting a kind of uh, um, I know she, she's kind of been given a, um, uh, a new leaf for credit. Right, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like uh, kind of a you know, newfound, you know, uh, street credit as a film director beyond just her her work as a, as a comedian. She's she's now regarded by uh, by you know some pretty uh, distinguished folks as as one of the best directors of that of that time. Uh, even though her output was uh, kind of uh, uh, quantitatively pales in comparison by uh, uh, you know to others who have who who maybe were more prolific in that in that era. Uh, so uh, the, the, the last two on that list are uh, Electric Glide and Blue, um, which uh, I always hear from you know, filmmakers nowadays and film people in general that uh, oh yeah that's you know you, you, the very mention of that title is bound to really get people uh, excited. Um, I had a I had a great beer uh, or number of beers last year with the filmmaker Patrick Wang, who uh, who, uh, who released his film. Uh, a bread factory and and uh that that's like his might be his number one favorite film of all time at the very mention of it and knowing that I had seen it he just kind of rattled on and prattled on about it for a while and that was fun but uh and and, and the last one being wake and fright which was a complete obscurity almost a lost film uh up until uh Ted Kotcheff's efforts to uh to kind of uh uncover it and to uh um and to get it uh, restored and now it's <laughs> reviewed on, on on every film site online people know it people are now talking about it it has a uh a newfound street credit so uh yeah so, so the new lease on on life section uh those are the are the films for that uh and then the next one yeah, the next okay well is, let's uh, let's let's stop there for a okay. second uh, okay. uh and uh steven i know as far as i'm concerned there's not a movie that was mentioned there that isn't a great movie and should be watched. Uh, yeah. And that's all I'll have to say. Stephen, I know you've got some things to say about at least Eddie Coyle. Yeah. Uh, so go well, ahead. I, w- I got, this is a little bit, but I got the trailer trauma DVD for the 70s action films and it has Sorcerer's Trailer on it. And the studio Soul Sorcerer is this mafia-style action movie. Which and it if is you not. Were the kid <laughs> that, you'd be pissed off back in 
Yeah. Yeah. And Nikki and Nikki, I've seen that it's good. It's on the Criterion Channel if you want to catch it. Uh, the Friends of Eddie Coyle. Oh, that. Well, oh, that's your favorite film of all out. time, I think, isn't it, Steven? Seriously? Yeah. For the longest time, yeah. it's like that's people good. are like, "What's your favorite '70s noir mob film?" I'm like, "Oh, Friends Eddie Coyle. What's that?" Just forever until the DVD come out. And Wake and Fright, the reason that it was almost lost is that they were looking for Wake and Fright. And yeah, they right. found it, it as Outback. Outback. Yeah. Which was his American yeah. title. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, yeah, I, uh, yeah. The Sorcerer trailer kind of had like a rat-a-tat-tat uh, mafia bend to it, which yeah, I, I agree was not... Uh, not bound to you know to really sell that movie well. It also uh, premiered uh, like I think it was a week after uh, Star Wars had gone into uh, into the into its run, and uh, I think the Chinese theater um, tossed out uh, uh, Star Wars and then put in uh, Sorcerer, and then people were like, "What the hell was this?" And then and then when that didn't uh, when, when it didn't play well, they brought uh, Star Wars back, is what I understand. So uh, it was kind of wrong. Wrong, wrong time, wrong, I don't know, wrong, wrong ethos for that film, I guess, right? Mm-hmm. And, and as far as I'm concerned, uh, the one film that I've always loved out of that group, well, both Mikey and Nikki, which which uh, you have two films, of course, by Elaine May, because that was directed yep. by Elaine also. Uh, yeah. But I'm a huge fan of Electric Light and Blue. I love that film, and I think it's, it's just a brilliant film, and no matter what you think of Robert Blake at this point in time, uh, uh, he gives a hell of a performance in that. And and mm-hmm. so, yeah, that's why I have to say, as far as any of those films, but all those films are well worth watching. No question. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so yeah. so now we get on to what you call your film modits. So why don't you explain that and give us a list for that? Um, so uh, on this you have films uh, uh, which is uh, which is cursed films is the meaning in French. So uh, this is a kind of a label appended to films that uh, that might deserve more love and attention, but uh, are probably still in, in many senses uh, denied that because they're because of uh, they have a kind of either a a shaky reputation or, you know, just, you know, still people can't really get on board with them or there's kind of some, you know, contention somewhere in the mix. So, so whereas like the, the new lease on life films are worthy films that have gained uh, an audience through the passage of time, these films uh, have yet to kind of really securely um, uh, obtain that for themselves or acquire that for themselves. So, uh, uh, mm-hmm. in, in other words, I guess cursed films that I guess remain cursed, but but in my opinion, uh, deserve more. Or you know, um, you know, I, in my opinion, people should uh, should rank on them less um, because I, I think they are uh, quite fascinating. So on that list, you have uh, New York, New York, which is the fir- actually the first uh, Scorsese film I ever saw in my my life. Um, I saw that when I was uh, like nine or ten years old, I think, uh, and uh, um, I was, you know, kind of, uh, you know, I, I mean, at, at that age, you're, you're kind of uh, 
stunned because, you know, it's just, uh, it's a very uh, completely patently unique type of uh, approach because you're, you're having, you have Cassavetti's kind of uh, improv uh against these kind of uh, artificial backdrops and sets and a, and a kind of uh, uh, super stylized type of uh, uh, environment. Um, so, which of course is the whole you know, experiment there, right? You're, you're kind of putting these two opposing elements uh, opposite each other and uh, watching them kind of uh, um, roughly coalesce or, or, you know, in many people's opinion, not. Uh, I guess, but uh, yeah, I really like that yeah, that film a great deal. Uh, sometimes a great notion uh, is mostly remembered for the Richard Jekyll drowning scene, um, which uh, you know normally when you mention that 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 title as a movie title in the mixed company, you know you know people will say that, yeah you know the, the, the movie was whatever, but that drowning scene oh my god that drowning scene actually I even think that Tarantino wrote a a piece for the you know, the new Beverly about about that uh, about that film and that scene recently. Um, I mean, I, I happen to think that there are other really really um, great set pieces in that film. Uh, you know, that one being the you know, the best one, obviously. But uh, but I, I think that movie has a lot more going for it other than that incredible drowning scene. Uh, then there's uh, looking for Mr. Goodbar. Uh, depending on who you ask, I mean, you know, you have a, you have a lot of people who say it's kind of Arch, kind of arch Catholic, arch arch Christian, uh, very moralist, very um, you know, just kind of very uh, um, you know, um, doesn't really revel in the uh, in the advantages uh, that uh, that a, maybe a younger director could have given that uh, material. But I, I happen to think that Richard Brooks's approach, uh, true crime approach, to the which he which he also invested in. Uh, in Cold Blood, I think uh, actually works in that film, but uh, um, you, you'll find many people who don't quite agree on that on that count. Uh, and then, the, then lastly, there's the, you know, the Day of the Locust, which uh, um, I mostly, I mean, you, you read uh, occasionally uh, some complimentary things about it, but when I, when I bring it up in conversation with whomever, either at a party or you know with with other film nerds, it's always like, oh, it's bombastic and it's it's uh it's very impressed with itself and it's too kind of you know magisterial and chaotic and you know and everything it's like well that's that's kind of the the you know the, the whole point the of it yeah wreck, uh, yeah it, yeah that you know that's kind of the hollywood as train wreck which i think is what uh schlesinger was trying to uh evoke so uh so you know, i also tend to feel that you know that that movie works quite well and of course you have conrad hall's wonderful camera work in that film uh to kind of um put the the cherry on the top of it i also knew karen black quite well uh up until when she died uh actually lived with her one one summer with with uh, karen and her husband and um she also has a very had a very negative uh takeaway from that uh, project she and uh Schlesinger did not get along at all um and um you know she tends to think that uh, uh John was one of the uh one of the meanest i guess uh, directors that that she'd ever worked with so uh you know she you know she wasn't fond of that uh, experience and claimed that it it uh, negatively impacted her career moving forward and which is why she took a number of uh B projects after that 
So, so Stephen, taking a look at those four films, what's your thoughts on those? Uh, New York, New York is good, but it's too long. It needed another rough. Ed- it needed another edit. Okay. And the reason yeah. that it caught so much crap is one, it wasn't uh, Mean Street. No, and and I, I I agree with you on that. I think because it wasn't what they expected, anytime you get that, you get this uh, uh, blowback from uh, critics and audiences. Uh, you know, that's not what I wanted. You know. Yeah. Well, yeah. there was also a kind of, there was also a kind of revolt against the 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 directors at that point. So, and then you also had this sense of New York, New York as like Marty's uh, cocaine fueled. Uh, fantasy, uh, you know, uh, train wreck movie, you know, or, or his, 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 his big flop. Uh, that's, that was all, oh, Marty was taking a lot of cocaine. And then n- normally, like, that's why people tend to rank on it. It's like, oh, he, you know, and, and that's, that's, that's often known as his, his main, um, um, you know, his main flop and, and you know, in his, in his entire career. And, uh, but yeah, I, I think that's, uh, uh, and of course, like as a musical fan and as a as a Judy Garland uh, aficionado and a, and a Minnelli nut, I mean, I, I I could have gone on watching that you know that film on and on. So yeah, you know, I, I think it depends on who who the who, whose taste we're talking about. But uh, uh, me personally, uh, you know, I'm I'm I've seen that film a number of times. I, I'd always I always uh, quite enjoy it. Yeah. Okay. So, Stephen, any other uh, things on, like, yeah, sometimes a great note? Yeah, and Looking with is a great yeah. film. I love it. Carl doesn't like it as much as I do, but I love it. The only problem is is that if you read the book of the true crime is that she, the main character, was an extreme submissive, and that's how she got herself into the situation where she got killed. And they use that as a bad, they're like... That's a bad thing. They just use her as another submissive female. That's why. No, that was her kink. That was her kink. Yeah. I mean, I, I think know. that uh, Diane. I think that Diane Keaton. Um, you even even when the film was uh, was written off, um, critics mainly uh, gave uh, plaudits to Diane Keaton. Who I think really uh, she injects a great deal of uh, a complexity into that role, uh, and that was a kind of another the other side of her face. And in, in the same year that Annie Hall came out, you had Annie Hall, and then you had this other portrait of her as an actress in uh, Mr. Goodbar. Uh, so it just uh, she, she, it, it kind of proved her her versatility in a way that uh, that I think was useful at that juncture in her career. Um, so yeah, it's a very it's a very difficult role uh, to assume as a, a as a female performer, but I I, I think that she really did it uh, uh, did it justice myself. Mm-hmm. And the big yeah, and for, another for, problem is that looking at Mr. Goodfire is hard to see because of the soundtrack and Paramount has not released it on DVD even as a bare bones edition. Yes, the, the music rights are, are uh, uh, indeed problematic, and, and that is what's keeping it up from a proper, you know, uh, proper DVD or 
Blu-ray release. Yeah, for for me, the one thing about Good Bar that I don't like is is that you know you're talking about an alternative, you know, sexual preference here in in terms of her being a submissive, and it's it's very judgmental, and 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 uh, that, and you mentioned that you know, and that's my big problem with that particular film. However, the one film we haven't talked about, or the two, sometimes a great notion. Be honest. I don't remember anything about that film. I saw it on HBO in you know seventy two or seventy three when we first got HBO. But boy, do I remember that drowning sequence. That's never going to yeah. get away from me. So I need to re-see that, you know, to really yeah, rejudge yeah, it. Uh, uh, yeah, but I mean, for me, Day of the Locust. I love Day of the Locust. I'm one of the few people I know uh, that have always. Uh, uh, champion that film, and as good as Karen Black is, and she's she's very good in that film. The the person that really really stands out for me is Burgess Meredith. Hey Burgess, yeah, yeah Burgess Meredith, yeah. He just yeah, he, yeah he's... you know, and we forget, you know, we 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 think of him, you know, as uh, Rocky's manager, and that's all we really think about him, or or perhaps the old Twilight Zone. Uh, episode, but he was so yeah, much more than the that. reader. Yeah, yeah, he yeah. was the guy who reads the book, right? To now. me, um, this is real quick. The reason that most people dismiss uh, not as Day of the Locust is that ending. It kicks you in the teeth and the throat so hard that they want to admit that yeah, this is just overblown modeling crap. They don't want to admit that that ending will kick. Will disturb you. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, also, and again, I mean, was... go back to the original novel because that's the ending I mean, of the fucking novel. Most feel and? that uh, based on the on the actual source uh, on uh, uh, Nathaniel West uh, uh, his his uh, novel or novella that that many people feel that that, that the film adaptation was rather bloated. And uh, you know, I was I was actually listening to uh, Nick Redman's commentary on Yanks uh, this past year. Nick Redman, R.I.P. He was a great man. Um, but um, you know, so and Nick uh, was was of that opinion. And in general, uh, he he veiled his his rancor for Locust in, in that commentary. But you could kind of tell that he was a little, uh, um, maybe a little. Uh, um, Resentful of uh, of that of that adaptation, uh, perhaps, but uh, and and that's really uh, uh, pervasive when uh, you know, when people talk about that film, uh, yeah, unfortunately. But uh, you know, that's yeah, that's the way it goes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So so here we are now at at your runners up, okay, and yeah. and what we'll do is is you know let's let's do about three or. Four Let's do about three or four at one time, and then see if we have any comments from there. So why why don't we okay. start on that? Now, now one thing okay. I want to say to the listeners before we start, I hope you have a, a, a little piece of uh, a notebook and a pen, and I'm writing these things down because a lot of what we're going to hear now are rather obscure films, much more obscure than the ones we've been talking about. So you may not know these films. And and certainly, if I don't know them, I'll, I'll uh, say, you know, uh, give us a little bit of uh, background on them. 
So why don't you give us like four or five of the the runners up to begin with, okay. Daniel? Okay. So uh, you know, just a quick note: the way that I I constructed this list uh, was basically uh, I was using a, a metric uh, wherein I was I was kind of trying to quantify uh, obscurity uh, because because that that's kind of often hard to gauge. So my, my top ten list, which you're going to hear later, is uh, it, it um, only consists of films with with under 1,000 user votes on IMDb, which I've actually come to to realize is a rather accurate gauge for a film for an older film's level of uh, obscurity, how well it's known. Uh, n- n- normally, with films with under 1,000 votes, keep, most people don't wouldn't know it. Uh, overall, uh, in, the, in, in a general sense, so these ones uh, I'm not really l- limiting to that metric, um, and, but but they're they're still not as widely known as uh, as the as the films that we would recognize as as classics. So uh, I'm going to go right on ahead. Uh, the first few are the effective gamma rays on Man in the Moon, Marigolds, Hester Street, Blue Collar, Images. And the strawberry statement. Okay, so you got any comments on 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 those particularly? Yeah, it's what um, effect? Uh, uh, well, no, it's already sold out. Twilight Time had a good Blu-ray of Effect of Marigolds. It's gone. Yeah, right. I actually wrote a piece for them about it. Um, I, I used to write uh, Mike Finnegan. Uh, who, who worked for Twilight Time always used to keep the door open for me, you know, to write about uh, whatever titles they had, you know, coming down the pike. So I, uh, if you look at the at their site uh, on their on their blog, you, you can you can see a piece I wrote about the effective gamma rays on the Man in the Moon Marigolds. But I, I think that's a uh, an incredible film all around. Uh, I think I think Paul Newman was the most acute um, director. Uh, who came, who came? Who hailed from a, uh, a you know the background of, of being a well-known actor? Um, I think I think he was the perhaps the most observant and the most uh, cinematic of the of the major actor uh, the major actors who became uh, film directors later. And uh, I, I mean I think that's in large part to uh, he worked a lot with uh, with the editor Evan Lottman, who is uh, probably one of my favorite cutters, if not my. M- m- my favorite editor, um, and uh, I think it, I think it has to do with the just the you know the general um, I don't know the the juxtapositions that he creates between uh, Joanne Woodward uh, and and even like down to Morris Jars uh, like very delicate uh, almost uh, almost imperceptible uh, music in the film where you have uh, you have a kind of uh, central theme. Which is which is played by any number of, of um, 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 instrumental combinations, and in, in which in which case you have Joan Woodward, who's kind of like you know uh, accented with a kind of a, a smartass you know kind of a, a saxophone, and then, and then you have the the exact same theme uh, played by her uh, for her daughter, which is played by uh, a clarinet or a flute, and kind of very delicate in, in, in an effort to kind of suggest that uh, uh, gone unchecked, these daughters might risk becoming their kind of herod and mother. Uh, yeah. So uh, yeah, I think that that's really uh, uh, you know, all, all the tools are used in, in, in that film 
very, very well to to uh, evoke the the notion that uh, uh, of, of what might be, uh, as well as just uh, using cinema. I mean, I, I happen to love that scene of of Woodward on on the top of the of the stairs saying apples, pears, cucumbers. <laughs> Like All right. Well, well, moving on. Uh, let's let's uh, go back to Stephen. Any other comments on 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 any of those other films? Oh, the other ones besides the Strawberry Statement and the Marigolds. The other two. Uh, what were they again? Uh, so the as Marigold, uh, Hester Street, Blue Collar, uh, images on the Strawberry Statement. Okay. That would be Robert Altman's images. Oh. Right. I wouldn't worry about blue collar. That bleed that DVD goes for about one hundred to one hundred and fifty bucks on Amazon. Blue collar. All I mean, blue collar needs is for some company to pick it up and put it out, and boom, it will be out there. I think it. I mean, I think it has like four thousand uh, votes, which is quite low on, on IMDb, and most people, I think, don't. Uh, don't know it as, as, as well as they should, but uh, um, you like know I it's said, just, that's uh, an, of its avail. Uh, that's not, what I call an unseen factor. Yeah. As soon as it get, no. if Criterion could get it, or a big good company could get it and put it out, it would be up there because Paul Schrader, uh, Richard Pryor, and Harvey Keitel in the 70s. Okay, sorry about that. Go ahead, Steve. <laughs> All I got to say about the strawberry statement is... <laughs> okay, never mind. Moving on. We know what you yeah. think. <laughs> uh, the one I have to mention is Images, uh, which I think is a really uh, underseen Altman Kim. Uh, and uh, it is valuable on a Criterion channel, and I recommend it highly. I won't go much into it other than it's a version of Persona or Repulsion, and it's very Altman-esque, and Susanna York is just fantastic in that movie. And yes, didn't yes. Arrow just put um, that out last year or this? Yeah, it was just last year that Arrow put year. it out. Yeah. Yes, it's a it's a nice package. Um, it's a brand new, and, a, and the cover is also very nice, by the way. The the brand new cover that they had commissioned is quite quite gorgeous looking. Um, but uh, in terms of the of, of the strawberry statement, I mean that, that's a very uh, um, it's a fascinating artifact of that time. Just as a kind of uh, a historical marker, um, you had uh, a number of uh, kind of um, alienated. Uh, Males who were trying to find the, you know, their footing in the counterculture of that time, uh, but using kind of uh, European uh, uh, editing techniques or tricks, um, using any number of uh, um, uh, kind of distortions uh, and and beyond that, uh, there's there's a lot going on in, in that film. I, I mean, I think most people go uh, kind of uh, an image of that. Of the soundtrack might might pop up in their in their heads, but uh, even even beyond that though, uh, it's a it's an interesting portrait of uh, m- you know the town where I live, which is you know uh, San Francisco in that era, 
so it's, it's it's very very kind of a powerful film uh, for me personally on that level, uh, living here and uh, having always wanted to, uh, as, as a boy, always wanting to eventually live here. Um, it, it's it's just a very very stirring document of a, of a, of a bygone era, which I think uh, okay. more more people. So so see. continuing uh, uh, because oh, wait, we've got so much to go on. Okay, go ahead, Steve. Every statement has, you talk about the films that you're talking about, it has the actor that I would say is that, and that's Bruce Davidson, who put out a great porn strawberry statement and a lot of other films in the early 70s, and most people don't even know who he is. Yeah, I know. He's a very nice man, actually. I've met him uh, on a number of occasions. If you mention any of his old titles to him, he will immediately, uh, you know, it's a, Big smile, and he'll tell you all kind of things. But you know, basically, um, anything that you might want to know, he'll he'll be willing to talk, talk about for for uh, you know, until the cows come home. He's a very very nice man. Nice, nice. So so continuing with your list, give us about five or seven or eight more. Okay, uh, Rancho Deluxe, <laughs> such good friends, the Christian Licorice Store. The Picks, Born to Win, Which Way is Up, T.R. Baskin. Uh, okay, and, let's, and let's stop there. Let's stop there, T.R. Uh, okay, so we've got uh, Rancho Deluxe, Such Good Friends, Christian Licorice Store, The Picks, Born to Win, Which Way is Up, and T.R. Baskin. Uh, I'm yeah. going to just mention very briefly here uh, The Picks, which I think is absolutely fucking brilliant. And understanding, uh, and a wonderful film. Uh, both Christopher Plummer and Karen Black is just amazing in this film. And and uh, yeah. who was that? Was that Harvey Hart that directed that? I think Harvey Hart. Yeah, yeah, Harvey Hart. Uh, yeah, very, Canadian, very uh, uh, Canadian director. Band, yeah. Very very good. I would recommend that. I also want to just mention Born to Win. Uh, that's the Ivan Passer film with George Siegel, correct? Yeah, yeah. Uh, also with Karen Black. <laughs> also with Karen Black. I see there's a Karen Black thing going on here. That's a good thing. Uh, uh, Born to Win is, is wonderful. And also there's a really uh, good little uh, bit by Vincent Chiavelli in that film. Uh, and yeah. and uh, directed by Ivan Passer. Uh, check him out. Well, and Vincent Scavelli. You're actually thinking of uh, uh, taking off, which which should be on my list. Oh, I'm taking. Okay, okay, never mind. Wrong one. <laughs> Wrong one. Sorry, sorry. Uh, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I I do have uh, a bare bones DVD of Born to Win, and it is brutal. It's yeah. brutal. Uh, uh, but, but yeah, those are two that I wanted to mention. Uh, out of those films, which ones do you want to talk about, Steve? Well, I want to mention about the picks real quick and probably move on because what I want to say is going on. I have what I call, most people ask, like, why isn't so-and-so out on a good DVD? I'm like, there's three levels of hell. One is studio apathy hell, which means the rights holders don't give a crap about what they have. The second is music rights hell, which is where Mr. Goodbar is in, where you have to show him music rights. 
And the third is the deepest and darkest one, and that's Canadian tax shelter rights hell. <laughs> and we've talked yeah. about that many times. Yeah. Uh, uh, just to get signatures and, and get rights to particular films, yeah. it's almost impossible. Like, uh, when you talk about that particular which would era. be on my list, but it isn't. Lawrence Harvey states on the Code Red DVD that he had to get signatures from 60 people to even get yeah. the right to look at the negatives to it. Yeah. You know, uh, and, and the, one, the, the one thing, before we go on, the one thing about uh, uh, the picks, it's not a great, uh, uh, um, uh, it's not a great uh, uh, film in terms of, you know, the quality. But it is available on YouTube, and if you have not seen it, you need to, even with that crappy print that they have. Okay, I'm well, done. Well, the, 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 I mean, you know, there actually is a very nice uh, DVD that uh, Scorpion put out, which has a commentary track with Karen Black and uh, uh, Mark Cook, uh, I think his name is. Uh, but uh, that's worth uh, tracking down and, and uh, owning if you can. Which is that's the version I have. What's hilarious about the picks is that uh, um, Karen Black's widower, who is one of my very closest friends, actually just talked to him uh, earlier today, loves the picks. Thinks that you know Karen like always wanted to. Do, uh, so uh, Stephen, uh, 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 Karen's uh, widower, happens to be a, a cutter and a, and a filmmaker in his own right, and uh, always thought that the the structure of the picks was quite novel and quite quite. Uh, compelling and and kind of always wanted to borrow or uh, steal from it whereas like if you, if you listen and and told me and karen that on uh, on a couple occasions when i was with them but uh, uh if you listen to karen on the commentary track uh she kind of sounds like she doesn't want to really be there but nonetheless maybe steven was like no 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 you know, do it it's you know it's one of my favorites of your movies you should you should go in there or whatnot but i'm not sure how that went down but uh there's a there's a good disc with a Commentary track by her, though. Okay. Yeah. Good. Now, now, just give us a little bit of background, particularly on Christian uh, Liquor Store and uh, and T R Baskin, because I I, I know okay. the title T R Baskin, but I don't remember it. And Christian Liquor Store, I've never even heard of. Okay, so uh, uh, Christian Liquor Store uh, is a very strange mood piece of a movie. Um, I mean, the, you know, the best way that uh, the, the best word that I, I could choose in order to, to describe that film is foggy, uh, as an f o g g y. Like it's it's just kind of it leaves you in a kind of a haze and daze after it. Uh, it was written by uh, Floyd Mutrix, uh, and actually um, it was directed by James Frawley, who uh, w- went on to make uh, uh, Kid Blue with uh, uh, Dennis Hopper a couple years later. Uh, but the, but uh, liquor store um, features Bow Bridges uh, and Maude Adams uh, and Gilbert Rowland. Uh, the, the the director Jean Renoir has a cameo in the film playing himself, uh, along with Monty Hellman has a cameo, basically playing a version of himself. There's a Hollywood party scene where you can catch uh, um, directors like Theodore Flicker uh, and uh, another kind of. Uh, the filmmakers who were kind of working the, the counterculture film scene at the time, 
But, uh, you know, the film is really about a kind of a tennis pro star who kind of loses his soul as he's kind of, uh, as he kind of um, is, uh, you know, introduced into, into the world of uh, celebrity uh, and uh, kind of w- what becomes of him uh, in the process of that and how, how it's kind of this, it's, it's a kind of um, study in, in existential angst because you, you, you really begin to see Bo Bridges' soul kind of beginning to deaden uh, as the film goes on. Uh, but you know, just the way it's shot and the, and just just the general mood. It's 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 also one of my favorite LA films of that era. Uh, I think I think it would be a great feature, uh, double feature with Model Shop. Just the way that LA is used in the film is uh, very evocative. Um, so uh, that's that's that film. Uh, the title, which um, <laughs> most people would ask, well, what does the title have to do with uh, with the film? Even after you watch it, it's just like, okay, that was. That was weird, but what does the title mean? Uh, it's it's the lyrics of a of a Tim Buckley song, and Tim Buckley appears in the film uh, as himself um, playing a, a folk singer, uh, and he he sings the the tune uh, with lyrics that are all the all the stony people walking around with a, a Christian licorice clothes. Um, so uh, yeah, they yeah you know, they took the title from that uh, song, I guess. But uh, if you if you not paying attention, you will miss that for sure. Uh, in any event, uh, there's also T.R. Baskin, which is a Candy Bergen um, film, which was written and produced by none other than Peter Hyams, who would go on to do mostly action. Uh, but uh, it, but the director of the film was Herbert Ross, who, of course, you know, very, very different uh, filmography. But it's kind of a, you know, a female character study, kind of comic, comic drama, or dramedy, if you want to call it that, uh, female character study about a young woman uh, moving to uh, Chicago from um, Ohio, I think it is. And uh, she, um, she kind of uh, is mistaken for uh, kind of a call girl or whatnot by uh, the character played by James Kahn, who has a, a one night stand with her. So he recommends Candy Bergen to Peter Boyle, uh, who's a, a kind of a, businessman from out of town who's just coming into into the city for a, a conference or something like that and um so yeah it's, it's just about her 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 experience as a, as a young uh, single woman in the city uh in that in, in that time uh and it's uh you know so it, it has some really really good uh, uh use of uh chicago uh excellent uh, um location work uh and um yeah, it's uh, it's it's very worth seeing. I mean, and then I don't think you see Candy Bergen uh, really plumbing, you know, the depths uh, uh, as you see her do in this role. Uh, even in like carnal knowledge, uh, she, she doesn't go quite as deep as she does in this movie. But it was written off at the time by critics. But I think people now are, and she's a really strange, odd, odd duck kind of character, making kind of these really weird non sequitur jokes for her own benefit and just a very, very uh, um, full-bodied, you know, complex character who's actually quite quirky and funny. Mm-hmm. I okay, so so now we're at the... Uh, uh, okay, go ahead, Steve. Go ahead. Uh, real quick of that, and T.R. Baskin and uh, Looking for Mr. Goodbars, two films that were 
condemned in the 70s for not being feminist enough. Well, this is yeah, this is at the height of it uh, in the uh, 71. I mean, even like a, um, a film which I'm going to talk about later is uh, Sheila Levine is Dead and Living in New York. If you look at the people writing about that film now, there's a kind of a, um, a resurgence of uh, attention uh, and um, respect that's that's now given to that film. That at the height of the of the uh, women's lib movement was was not uh, that people. I mean, were were ready to kind of hoist uh, uh, hoist uh, you know Sydney Fury up uh, on a on a you know petard on a petard and, and kind of uh, you know, put him put him over a roasting fire. Um, but uh, now, out of that, out of the hate, out of the kind of the uh, the ethos of that time, then you have another. You have people watching, you know, the film anew, uh, just as you, just as uh, that happens with uh, Baskin. So, um, yeah, I, I think it's I think it's ripe for a rediscovery. Okay. So, so now we have the rest of your list, and what we're going to do here, uh, because I. I kind of figured like an hour for this and then an hour for what we're we're doing uh, a little later on our top movies. Um, I'm going to take a look here and I'm going to mention a couple that are on, on your list uh, that I love and, and that, that I want to just talk about briefly. Um, Joe Orton is someone who's very important to me as far as a writer and, and that. And The Day and the Death of Joe Egg, which was directed by Peter Medak, and now best known probably for the ruling class. Uh, and very, I love his nineties work too. Uh, uh, but, but, uh, a day in the death of Joe egg, I think is a tremendous film and it's basically a, a film of a play. And Alan Bates is just amazing in it. And, uh, it's very dark, uh, but it's very funny. And, uh, uh, you have to be, you have to really like dark humor to to appreciate it. So, so that's probably why it never hit. Now, you and and the next one for me is Duty Kravitz is basically my uh, someone that movie and Mordecai Rickler and his writing. Uh, uh, I think are just fantastic, and Richard Dreyfuss is, is wonderful in that film. That needs to be seen more. Um, Glenn and Randa. Uh, Jim McBride, uh, um, you should check out every damn film he ever did. Uh, and, and it's a wonderful, strange science fiction film. Um, and then Peter Watkins, watch every goddamn thing he's ever directed. Peter Watkins is amazing, and Punishment Park right now is very prescient, you know, with our political situation, I think. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. uh, that's a film that needs to be be seen. So, so Stephen, taking a look at the list, what ones would you want to just mention briefly? Which way is up is maybe Richard Pryor's funniest movie before he became the mainstream Richard Pryor. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he plays what's... four roles in it. He plays like his. He plays. Himself, uh, a dirty old man, a preacher, and what's weird is it was based on a French political comedy. 
uh, well, it was uh, it was actually based on uh, Lena Vertmuller's uh, The Seduction of Mimi, uh, the Italian uh, The Italian one, not uh, French. Yeah, okay. That's yeah. right. Yeah, but I mean, and, uh, I, I I I happen to love the labor backdrop of that of that film a great deal. I mean, uh, beyond just being hilarious, based on the fact that Pryor plays, uh, I think it's three roles, but uh, uh, just just uh, you know, on that basis, it's a it's just a comic, it's a you know comedy gem. But uh, just in terms of uh, how it's how it's kind of uh, set against the backdrop of a uh, of kind of a, a you know the labor movement and unions and and uh, you know. Food pickers and everything else, I think, uh, adds a very interesting dimension to the film. Mm-hmm. Okay, keep and going, we, Steve. Uh, the next one I like to talk about was the uh, the, the, the Krillian Witness. That's one of the most unique films to come out of the whole Chariots of the Gods, Van Hyken. ESP cycle there was. Even if you don't like it, this is one you need to see once because you will not see another film like it. No, not even close. <laughs> not yeah. even freaking close. I love this yeah, film I mean, too. I'd love the Carolina. I mean, I mean, even if you think it's crackpot science, again, as a mood piece uh, and uh, for a film shot in New York of that uh, of that time. Um, Quite uh, just a, re- a really really fascinating uh, you know uh, experience as a film. Uh, even even if you think that the science behind it is bunk, it's uh, worth seeing still. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. It's like absolutely. they took something like that and they put and they made a good mystery out of it. They made a great mystery out of it. Yeah. You know. Uh, for and people that don't know what about. a Kirlian witness is, hold on, Steve. Just very briefly, it's uh, uh, there is a murder, and the plants react to it. And so it's about the plants and how they give clues to what happened. Thank and you, so Carl. And so that, that, what? If you notice, me and him just spent four minutes dancing around trying not to ruin it so people will be surprised when they go see it. I popped out the plants. I'm so sorry, guys. <laughs> well, I mean, I like, just try to imagine a pitch meeting with that with that concept. I mean, just like going to a pitch meeting where a guy pitches the Killian witness to uh, a studio exec. So, you know, I would <laughs> that would have been interesting to, to witness. Oh, I would have loved to have been uh, on that one. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> Okay, keep going, Steve. Give us a couple more. And the last one I want to talk about is the best film ever with a guy getting a hand job from a gorilla. (laughs) (laughs) Of course he would go there. And that would be be one of the most insane movies you'll ever see, and that's Thundercrack. There's nothing that describes how bizarre and insane that movie is. It's an it's epic porno horror comedy. You'll think you're on drugs <laughs> after you've seen it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a it's a completely outrageous epic porno horror comedy. Um, yeah, <laughs> I'll I'll say it one more time. An outrageous epic porno horror comedy. Yes. All right. Yeah. It's, <laughs> okay. On that alone, run and see it. <laughs> 
Okay. And, quite, and so, so uh, Daniel, you, you have other films on that list. Which ones do you want to mention before we go on to our top ten? Well, if, if, um, if you will uh, quickly permit me, I'll, I'll just uh, quickly rattle off without commentary the rest of them. Uh, Dan, okay, that's a Apprenticeship of uh, Dirty Kravitz, Between the Lines, Glenn and Randa, Over, Under, Sideways, Down, 125 Rooms of Comfort, Three Card Monty, Skip Tracer, Nanook Taxi, Punishment Park, The Curly and Witness, Luminous Procurus, Thundercrack, Private Parts, the, the Paul Bartel Private Parts, Passing Through, Wally Madonna XXX, Northern Lights. So, yeah, nice. Nice. I've uh, always liked, you know, I've always liked uh, 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 private parts. Yeah. <laughs> I love. I, tell them about what they wanted on the poster, Stephen. Uh, what they wanted to do is the original tagline was, "Come to your local theater and see Paul Bartel's private parts." <laughs> I, oh, uh, I actually didn't mention that I did a commentary track for uh, a Paul Bartel film that will be out at the end of June uh, for his, uh, another uh, an underseen film in the 80s called uh, uh, Not for Publication. Uh, so um, I actually did that, that track with, with Alan Arkish, who knew Paul very well. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I'm, I, uh, I, I got into a whole Paul, Paul Bartel kind of zone when I was uh, – uh, researching that track but uh yeah private parts oh, no, actually alan does alan does ask me on that track what's my favorite paul bartell movie and on the track i answer it's uh, uh private parts i have a, I have a particular yeah, that is for one that of one. The mo- people think that they watch reverse and kinky films you need to see private parts <laughs> yeah yeah dude that was thundercrack and have your mind blown seriously double feature <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's that'll be uh, that'll that'll be like a, a overload uh, issue. Your, your brain might explode, or your or other parts you know, of you might what's explode. What's hilarious uh, is that AIP made private parts, but you'll never know because there isn't a print that exists today that has a studio credit before it. <laughs> well, no, well, no, well, the, well, the whole background of that was that it was an MGM film, and MGM didn't want their their lion. At the head of it, so they used what they used on Blow Up, which was the it was a kind of a, a subsidiary tax shelter kind of thing uh, called uh, Premier Productions. So at the head of Private Parts, you you won't see the MGM Lion, but you will see that uh, that that bumper. So uh, yeah, that's the background. Yeah, MGM didn't want their their imprimatur on the film. <laughs> yeah, maybe understandable actually. <laughs> Perhaps. I don't know. We need more film with S and M gay priests. <laughs> yeah, why not? I'm okay with that. Okay, so so at this point we we're at four o'clock and we're going to go till five, maybe a little after. So so what we've done here is each of us have a list. list. <laughs> yeah, we might not get all all of it, but uh, you know, I mean. It's up to you as far as your time time is concerned. Uh, but what I thought yeah, I would do at least <laughs> at this point, I can just go through a couple of mine real quick. Because anyone that has listened to, 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 to Carl's Cavern and, and, and to st- shows that I 
do with Stephen have heard me talk about all these films. Um, and and so I, I've always had uh, a, a flag out there waving on all these films. So I'll give it a couple here. Um, one of the most underseen exploitation films was done by John St. John. Uh, and he had a small role in, uh, in uh, Shaft. So he was a DC native, and he did a little film called Top of the Heap about a black cop in DC partnered with a white cop who actually, they are friends, but he, the, the pressures of everything make him uh, uh, basically daydream about being an astronaut. So you have this gritty uh, a black exploitation film mixed with Walter Mitty. And it is one odd little ride. Okay? And that's one film that I think is very underseen. And actually, I think that's up on Tubi at this point. Yeah, it's on Tubi. Okay? The second one is one that I have championed forever and ever and ever, ever since I saw it on HBO in the uh, mid-'70s. And Robert Mulligan is not one of my favorite directors but he had a really bad day, and he put out a damn good film called The Nickel Ride, which to me is one of the really underseen, brilliant uh, 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 gangster movies. Neo-noir, I might call it, yeah. Neo-noir. Uh, and that, Jason Miller, Victor French, that word while I'm uh, in the room. just everybody in that film. Go ahead, Steve. Don't use that word while I'm in the room. Take off the what room. It's <laughs> and another one I thought I would have mentioned at least at this point is a film now now we all know Rocky and we know all know John Abelson and, and once Rocky hit he will, he had all these films that he did well he did a number of films before Rocky and I prefer his pre-Rocky stuff too and, and this is a film you can find on YouTube. It's a little known film with Gasp. The lead actor is Jackie Mason. Yes. Jackie Mason, yeah. the the uh, uh, comedian, the Jewish comedian. And he plays a low-level hood who decides to steal money from his boss and go to Miami and live the high life and it does not work out well. And it's a wonderful little film that was shot in New Jersey, primarily, and just rank and nasty, you know, area. And it's called The Stoolie, and I recommend it highly. Yeah. So those three films, what do you guys have to say? Dan, we, we talked about these a little bit. So what what do you think of those three? Uh, I mean, I, I agree with you that pre-Rocky Avildsen is, uh, is my uh, personal preference. I mean, you also get, uh, uh, I guess, a, a a third in that in that kind of duo that, that we mentioned earlier. Uh, you could have Cry Uncle, uh, Thundercrack, and uh, uh, Private Parts on a on a kind of a triple bill. I think um, that would be kind of uh, be kind of interesting. Um, but um, yeah, I, I'm a, I'm a big fan of the of the Stooley, uh as well. I, I think that I think that's a really really uh, fascinating kind of. Uh, I mean. 
he just had a kind of a grungy, gritty kind of uh, street cinema vibe to his early work. Even in uh, uh, Save the Tiger, which is, uh, of course, a, a more high-profile film that he made pre-Rocky, uh, it still kind of has a um, you know, take-it-to-the-streets kind of vibe about it uh, and a kind of a... Um, kind of unclean it's not it's not a it, he, he's against anything uh pristine in those early films whether it's yeah, Joe absolutely. or whether it's absolutely yeah, uh which i really appreciate personally um so uh yeah and you know the the nickel ride i guess there's a there's a term i didn't know about until recently of uh la noirs that are called uh uh, sunshine Noirs, which uh, I, I, I wasn't even aware it was a term, uh, but it's like the you know the kind of uh, 70s, uh, I guess neo in parentheses Noirs set in L.A. Um, but um, yeah, I, I'm a I'm, I'm also very you know very fond of that film as well. Um, has a, a number of great uh, uh, sequences, and, and I agree that uh, Mulligan was really using. Whatever uh, cinematic chops he had uh, on that uh, on that on that picture, top of the heap. Uh, I saw once when I was in um, when I was just buying tons of uh, kind of black exploitation bootlegs, uh, maybe about twelve years ago. Um, I, I, I recall liking it. Um, I think I watched it. I, I watched that one along with films like uh, Holes of Anger. I think I also saw around that time, which is kind of a you know, ridiculous kind of uh, uh, high school picture, uh, which is like where the rules are are kind of uh, reversed and uh, uh, whatnot. But uh, and that and like other ones. But yeah, I I, uh, I recall liking that, but I don't I don't have a very clear memory of uh, top of the heap. But yeah, I I recall thinking it was it was interesting. Okay. So so Stephen, any anything about those three that you want to talk about? Yeah, I agree with you about Allison, uh, pre-Rocky. Uh, and I wish to God that MGM would license Joe to a company that would give it the proper edition it deserves. Agreed. Agreed. Wholeheartedly. Well, the, well, the, the Whole problem there is that MGM, I, I mean, I, I've encountered this hurdle. I think everyone who does commentaries has encountered the hurdle wherein um, MGM legal is, is awful. Uh, no one wants to deal w- w- with MGM legal. They their contracts are are very very stiff. Their their licensing agreements leave very little latitude for the uh, the the licensee. Uh, thus, uh, um, most of us are uh, forbidden from from commenting on on MGM titles, and that's just kind of the way of the beast right now, or the nature of the beast right now, unfortunately. Uh, but uh, it's not the fault of the of the companies putting out the film, that's it's MGM legal. Okay. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Uh, so, Stephen, yeah. you got a couple. Why don't you pick a couple from from your list? Well, my list, and I'm going to add uh, to it, is one of the first is the aspects, which is Wait, hard. The aspects. The aspects. Yeah. Oh, right. Okay. That one yeah. is hard to recognize. Well, it was hard to really sell back then because it's easier to say what it isn't than it is an action film. Yeah, it's it's a Victorian sci-fi horror 
religious film. It's odd. It's yeah. very odd, and I love it. Yeah. I I often tend to pair that with uh, the blood on uh, a, a Satan's claw, which is uh, which is uh, one of my favorite horror horror films of that era. Mm-hmm. Were you lucky enough to get out to get the ten second Blu-ray that they put that Severin put out? Uh, I did not grab that. I, I was I was not able to get that. But uh, uh, I guess just in my mind, I, I often pair the films or uh, the the aspects or, or films like it with uh, the Blood on Satan's Claw, which I think is uh, I think Joe Dante or someone in his league kind of uh, wrote a. a a very, uh, very great uh, uh, appreciation of uh, of that film. Okay. Keep going, Steve. Give us a couple and more. And next is two obscure black exploitation films. One shouldn't be. And the first is Sweet Jesus Preacher Man, which is the only leading film with Roger E. Mosley, and it's just so much fun with Roger Mosley playing a crook who becomes a priest who pretends to be a priest so he can run drugs out of the church, but he ends up becoming like a savior to the whole black community. (laughs) (laughs) And the other one is, why is Trick Baby still obscure? People Mm. know who Iceberg Slim is. They love it. But you are really hard pressed to find a black exploitation fan that knows and has seen Trick Baby. Um, Stephen, hang. Uh, I would hang tight on that because Kino. Um, uh, I mean, I, I'm I'm uh, doing uh, work for them nowadays. They just they they, they license uh, boatloads of uh, of Universal titles nowadays. Uh, all the all the upcoming ones that that, that I'm doing commentaries on are all. Uh, of universal titles, uh, and uh, Trick Baby happens to be uh, uh, a universal title. So I would, I would just hang tight on that. It'll, I, I think it'll, it'll make it out eventually. Oh, I know it's out there, but it's just not seen. No, but he's yeah. saying there's going to be something physical. Good, 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 good. And if okay. you don't see okay. it after it's out, I will personally then, like, come Blu-ray find quality. it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's enough of that. So, yeah, Dad, you are two you've films got that are in yourself. Canadian tax shelter rights hell, and that's Shoot and A Quiet Day in uh, the Country. Shoot. Uh, shoot, also directed by Harvey Hart, uh, who we mentioned earlier, uh, in a association with the the Picks. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> I, you know what? I, you should do a triple feature of the Picks, the Finks. And the the asphics. <laughs> no, not the figs. No, I understand exactly what you say, but no figs. We don't want any figs. <laughs> the figs Shoot is one the of the most bizarre anti-gun films you will ever see, but it has amazing performances from Cliff Robertson, Ernest Borgnine, Henry Silva. It's about a group of hunters that run into another group of hunters in the woods, and they end up starting a war with each other. Yeah. And then it gets weird. Which, uh, which would be echoed later by Walter Hill's uh, Southern Comfort, in a way, I guess, uh, even though those are Cajuns, but, you know, uh, kind of the same type of uh, type of setup. Yeah. Do you know A Quiet Day yeah. in the Country? 
that's the uh, wait. Uh, wait, uh, is that uh, Ernest Borgnine? I, I, I yeah. often get uh, uh, yeah. I, I, I often get confused that one and uh, a quiet place in the country with uh, Franco Nero and Redgrave. Um, that's yeah, another one of the other places too. But yeah, well, what it is is Ernest Borgnine. He's a preacher. I mean, a farmer who lives with his daughter. And it starts out as your typical last house on the left ripoff with the three crooks. One played by Michael J. Pollard, who invaded yeah. his house. And then it gets dark, very, very dark. <laughs> Directed, I believe, by uh, John Trent, who kind of became the you know the Canadian version of uh, Jack Smite in a way. He was just like yeah. the, you know, he he did kind of like uh, whatever movie I think they threw his way, including I think uh, the year after that I think he did the the Anthony Newley, uh, um, John Candy, Isaac Hayes comedy. Uh, uh, Yvonne DiCarlo uh, was also in it. Uh, it. It seemed like a good idea at the time, but uh, John Trent was uh, kind of like the the key journeyman of uh, can of the. Uh, CFTC uh, Canadian tax shelter era. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the last yeah. two I met, okay. one of them is from okay, one Okay, go director. ahead. Finish up your list, and, and, and then we'll get down. Go ahead. It's a Mexican director, and that's uh, Jose Lorenz, I think. No, Montezuma, with Alucarda, which is out on a good DVD from... Mondo Macabro, you need to see it. It's a great film. Mm-hmm. And Mansion of Madness, which is... Hmm. That one I don't know. <laughs> it's a surreal version of... Uh, it's like... Doc- what if Dr. Tar, Professor uh, Feather. Yeah, Professor Tar and Dr. Feather and missed it with... What's that one the Polish director did? The Phantom... The Saragoso Asylum or... The asylum. Oh, that's, the asylum. Talking about Wojciech Haas is the. Well, there's the, the there's the hourglass uh, sanitarium, and then there was the that's the, it. the, uh, the Saragossa manuscript was also his. Yeah, the hourglass yeah. sanitarium. You mix that with Doctor Tar and Professor Feather, and see what you get out of it. <laughs> <laughs> that's the best way to describe that asylum of the. Uh, yes. Mansion okay. of Madness. Very, very beautiful, very surreal, very weird. We like weird. Okay. We like weird a yeah. lot. And and Alicarda, I I do have to admit, uh, really fine film. Uh, and Mondo Macabro put out a wonderful uh, uh, DVD. So I, I think it's Blu-ray too. They put out too, but I have the DVD. No, they but, can't yeah. get the rights. Yeah. Blu-ray. They tried. Okay, so they only had the DVD. Yeah. Okay. So Dan, this you're you're our guest. Now it's your turn. Give us give us about half your list. Half of it. Okay. Uh, my number one, uh, which is probably uh, also just generally on my top five films of all time, one probably one of the most influential films on my own on my own filmmaking and and the way that I edit my films. Uh, is Jerry Schatzberg's Puzzle of a Downfall Child, uh, which is still underseen. I think it was declared a Cannes classic um, back in 2012, I think. Uh, the French love it. Uh, 
Michel Simon thinks it's one of the great films of that of that era. Uh, I just think that uh, that's a, a it's, it's an incredible film, but in America, no one knows it at all, really. Um, even like even people who might be up on uh, Jerry Schatzberg's uh, um, other kind of uh, the, you know, the rest of his corpus or the rest of his output might not know, um, you know, likely don't know this this film. Um, but it features uh, it's uh, Faye Dunaway as a uh, kind of mentally uh, deteriorating uh, fashion model uh, who is kind of imparting her. Uh, 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 life story to uh, uh, one of her uh, a photographer friends who's played by Barry Primus. Uh, but the film also features uh, um, Vivica Linfors, who's, who's uh, one of my favorite actresses, uh, uh, if, you're, if you're not aware. Uh, uh, Carl, I think you're aware of that. Uh, and Roy Scheider, who was just uh, getting, getting started in film at that point. Uh, he plays one of her uh, ex-lovers. Um, so, uh, that's my number one. Uh, the next one is the Noah, uh, which again, um, very few people know, uh, that, that film. I, I've been nice enough, uh, haha, to put it up on my Vimeo, uh, for free. You can also watch it on YouTube, but that, that's a horribly compressed version on YouTube. So don't watch it on YouTube. Go to, you know, go to my Vimeo, watch it on, on my Vimeo. Cause that's the best way to see it. Uh, it's right from my my disc. It's a fairly good transfer. Uh, had to had to deinterlace and do a couple of other things to get it looking uh, up up to par. But uh, that's a really really uh, uh, fascinating like one man movie pretty much. Uh, Robert Strauss uh, lands on a on a uh, deserted island after after the uh, uh, worldwide nuclear war, and uh, it's kind of uh, has some kind of castaway vibes where he invents these kind of uh, characters who kind of live in his head. One is a Friday and then the other is a female Friday who happens to be voiced by uh, a young uh, Sally Kirkland. Uh, And um, it's just, it's a beautifully, beautifully shot black and white film, um, which is, which is really haunting and very uh, dynamic in terms of uh, the, the, uh, cinematic elements of it um it's it's on an out of print uh dvd which i own which is hard to come by i think used copies of it go on amazon for like you know 50 60 bucks uh at the at least uh but uh if you go to my vimeo you can uh you can watch it there uh so that's my number two uh number three is wedding in white with carol kane uh which is a canadian film it's carol kane and uh donald pleasant's uh, and um, she plays a uh, it's it's a war, it's a wartime film uh, in which uh, um, so Carol Kane is uh, Donald Pleasance's daughter. Um, her brother comes home with one of his uh, one of his fellow RAF uh, friends. Uh, the, the, his friend happens to rape Carol Kane, and she becomes uh, uh, impregnated. And uh, in order to not bring shame on the family, Pleasance arranges that his old and drunkard friend uh marries her uh in order to keep uh keep the you know the family name intact but it's just a really heartbreaking uh kind of uh character driven film uh set in uh in the uh, Canada of World War 2 um and then there's Quackster Fortune has a cousin in the Bronx which is an early Gene Wilder uh film uh right it was the, it was the first film that he made right after the uh the producers. It was that and uh, 
uh, start the revolution without me, but uh, um, uh, Quackster Fortune was an Irish where Gene plays Irish and even tries to tries to you know, the whole brogue thing, um, and uh, he follows the uh, uh, delivery horses around Dublin, and uh, uh, he uh, scoops up their dung in order to sell that as a uh, fertilizer because he wants to be he wants to remain independent and uh, nonconformist. He doesn't want to work in, in the foundry, which is where all the other grown men in their in their little village work. Uh, and on, on the day that uh, um, the horses are about to be uh, replaced by uh, motorized carts, thus ending his job, he meets uh, uh, Margot Kidder, who's a kind of a well-to-do uh, American student at Trinity, uh, who comes from a more much more privileged background they have a kind of a love affair um so yeah that's uh th- that was actually directed by Warris hussein uh who also would a year a year later would make another really really wonderful movie called uh melody on which uh moonrise kingdom is partly based at least uh and then there's man on a swing by by frank perry uh with cliff robertson which uh, uh i actually showed to my my uh um, longtime cinematographer, uh, I think it was like a year and a half ago, and it was—it's just a really uh, transfixing uh, experience. It begins as a kind of a, a true crime film, and then it kind of uh, becomes uh, something else. The only interaction I've ever had with Tarantino directly was talking about this movie, and he called it the pre-Fincher uh, uh, David Fincher film. Um, so if that gives you any idea, it's just a really, really. Uh, fascinating uh, um, crime film that is more than a crime film, I think. You had me with Frank Perry. (laughs) I'm not saying anything, okay? I'm not a big fan of Perry, but that's okay. But, yeah. Uh, So, so Stephen, what do you got to say about those those five films? Anything? Yeah, well, Frank Perry, period. All of his films are... (laughs) To be put on this list. I mean, last summer, that film's impossible to see. Well, that's... Uh, Swimmer, it's out of print. So not not enough people know it that should. If you see Frank Perry yeah. and he directed a film, you need to watch it, because he doesn't make normal films and bless him for that. Yeah. yeah. For some reason, I've never connected with them. I mean, I could take a look at the swimmer and and see that everybody does an absolutely fabulous job of, of course, Burt Lancaster. And I still don't like the film. There's something that I just can't connect with. I don't know what it is. Uh, perhaps it's because he seems to not uh, almost have a surgical you know, precision that, that you're looking specifically at one thing and not seeing the whole picture or something like that. I don't know. Yeah. I, uh, you hate it because you, you get the point. Well, I, I don't know. I think it's too pointed or something. I don't know what it is. But that's me. That's me. There's no shots of grass blowing for 20 minutes. <laughs> of course you're going to go there. <laughs> Um, I love, by the way, I love Cracks for Fortune. I yeah. freaking love that movie. Uh, and, and it's a film that if you love 
Gene Wilder, and 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 you know more of his later material uh, with Richard Pryor, and, and and so on and so forth. You need to go back and see this because he really was, I think, an underrated actor. You know, not given enough chance to do roles like this, and he just is fabulous in this movie. I love this movie. What I love about Quacks the Fortune is how it turns. At the first, when Margot Kidder comes in, the movie's like, oh, here she is, a free spirit. She's a free spirit. And then it lets you realize, no, she's not. She's just young. Quacks the Fortune's the actual free spirit. Yeah. I named one of my cats after Margot Kidder's character in the movie. Uh, so my my I, one of my cats is named Dave. One of my cats is named Dave, Margot's character. So yeah, there you go. And I'll tell you what. The other thing is, I I don't know. I I've seen Puzzle, and Puzzle is a really fine film. Uh, but I'm a huge Carol Kane fan, and I've never even heard of Wedding in White. Got to check that one out. I the Wedding love in White Carol. is a beautiful film, yeah, and it's I also. Carol Kane as one of the most underseen actresses of the 70s. Because people mostly know her for her taxi and her 80s stuff. They don't know her from the 70s when so, she did crap like the Mafu cage. So uh, do you guys know what Jack, Jack Nicholson used to call Carol Kane? He had a nickname for what? Carol Kane. What? So he, what? He, called Karen, he called Karen Black Blackie and he called Carol, Carol Kane Whitey. <laughs> Henry Jaglin. Okay, I can see that. Yeah. Um, but um, no, uh, Wedding in White is actually very beloved by uh, uh, Canadian film scholars. They 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 often mention it as one of the best uh, uh, formative uh, Canadian pictures. Uh, it's normally on a list on a list with Going Down the Road and. Um, my uncle Antoine and and all these other uh, uh, all their other kind of uh, um, you know canon their 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 canon. So uh, Wedding in right. White is is a really really wonderful film, and uh, I do uh, I, I do highly recommend tracking that down. It's a really really heartbreaking uh, story with a with a very very sympathetic female uh, protagonist who is uh, treated horribly in in the movie, but uh, it's really really does a, a number on your emotions though. And actually it was it was because of Wedding in White that uh, Joan Micklin Silver uh cast Carol Kane and Hester Street on the basis of having seen her in uh Wedding in White. Um mm-hmm. so that that made an impression on Joan um when when she was casting her movie. I tell you the first time I ever saw Carol Kane was that small little role she did in the last detail. That's the prostitute, yeah. and I fell yeah. in love, literally fell yeah. in love with her. Yeah, and that's and, and, um, that, the whole the whole joke there is that uh, Randy Quaid chooses her among the line of of girls, uh, and then uh, Nicholson says, "God damn, he chose the one I would have picked." <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. good for Randy Quaid. He, yeah. he needs that. So, so I got to finish up with with. If you haven't seen the map, you need to see that one. That one's a very twisted little film. 
Yeah, they have it by uh, Joan Darling, I think, was the director of that, right? Am I, yeah. I always get that mixed up. Yeah, the Mafu Cage, yeah. Yeah. I think it was. Wait a minute. Yeah, I think it was. Anyway. Okay, so, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to finish up my list it, just sorry. briefly with the exception of one film, and we'll, we'll kick back to, to Dan. Um, you know, again, if I take a look at this list, most of it is from 1970 to 1974 with one exception. Um, but the next one I want to talk about is a film that I absolutely love. I remember Good seeing moving. this Keep when we first got HBO in 1973. And uh, I love Chuck McCann. Okay? Most of you know him as a kid's host. Uh, but if you look at Heart is a Lonely Hunter, he's absolutely wonderful in there. But he did a film with Harry Hurwitz called The Projectionist. And it's also the first film uh, that... Uh, um, um, Oh, I can't think of his name. Roddy I just lost it. Roddy Dangerfield. Who proclaimed this as his best? Who proclaimed this as his best film in interviews? Yeah, and and, and Chuck McCann is a projectionist at a film theater where where an old type film theater where you have ushers and so on and so forth, and and Rodney Dangerfield is the uh, um, is the head of that, and uh, he daydreams be in films and so on and so forth and so you have these wonderful segments of silent film in here and so on and so forth and going back to different types of films uh, uh, and and it's wonderful it's a wonderful film and and uh, just something that you need to see if you've never seen it um, another film I love uh, I love these directors that nobody knows of and another director that I absolutely adore is Ernest Pintoff, who probably has the grittiest films uh, uh, um, noirs of the 70s. And one of them uh, stars Red Buttons as a washed-up uh, ex-boxer whose next-door neighbor uh, that he talks to occasionally, who's a prostitute, is killed. And it's called Who Killed Mary? What's Her Name? And it's a hell of a, it, it, it's an incredible film. Uh, and, and that's a, a film that, that you all need to see. And then, of course, not too long ago, last month, uh, the Criterion Channel had it. And so I oh, really? went up and down said to Stephen, we have to do a, a commentary watch on this. And that is Red Sun, which is uh, Charlie Bronson and Toshiro Mifune. It has and a wonderful, Dion. yeah, and Alain Dillon and uh, Claudia Cardinal, uh, and wonderful uh, Western. And it has a segment where Shiro Bafuti just basically wipes the fucking floor with with Bronson. It's wonderful. It's wonderful, uh, and and that's another one I, I would recommend. So I'm going to leave it there and just talk about those three. Um, Dan, any any comments on any of those films? Uh, well, I mean, Ernie Pintoff, uh, you and I are, are on the same page. Even uh, recently, just just you know, this past week, I've been handing off uh, his other movie, Blade, which he made the, uh, a couple of years after. With Who John, John Marley. Yeah. John Marley, yeah. 
which it's one of the it's one of the clumsiest films uh shot films i guess but it's but the actual style of it is somewhat it's it's really weird how like the the uh uh aesthetics of it are are so odd for that type of a film it's it's shot in kind of a handheld uh <laughs> direct uh cinema type of uh uh style which doesn't quite fit the the, the whole uh, ethos of a of a, a police detective you know, type of thing, but it's, it's just it's really like a um, again like we're talking about the, the stoolie uh, and kind of another grungy um, uh, like kind of low budget uh, genre film of the time, which I think Pintoff uh, had a had a corner of, uh, on the market for, uh, but I, I, I like I like Ernie Pintoff for that. Uh, and uh, Blade, I, I've been I've been fascinated about that movie for years, you know, just because I always had the uh, the you know the TV cut of it, which was the only version that you could get on on uh, tape for the longest time or on any kind of video copy. Uh, and then a couple uh, years back, they they finally released the uh, the original print of the film on uh, DVD, and I was at, you know, at last able to see the the murder scenes that had been cut out of the film. But uh, I get it's a it's a perfect double feature with Who Killed Mary What's Her Name, which is again just in, in that same school with a with a kind of a finer edge and just in terms of the, uh, the 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 use of camera and everything. It's not it's not Blade, and that Blade is completely handheld, and the 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 zoom and the and the shot is is readjusting in the middle of the scene uh, or in the middle of a shot even. Um, but uh, so uh, Who Killed Mary What's Her Name is a little more uh, polished, refined. Yeah, it's yeah. a little more polished. It, yeah, but it's uh, yeah, Pintoff had a really good corner on that market there. So I, I like that film a great deal. Red Sun is uh, you know, it's just it's a really really good uh, programmer. I always like Morris Jarre's main theme with the, I think it's the pan flute, right? Um, mm-hmm. And uh, just the, kind of the melding of uh, uh, kind of Shogun Japan with uh, with the Old West. Um, kind of a, like the the perfect one of the perfect uh, films of the of the era of the uh, uh, international co-production, right? Where where uh, all right, these exactly. all these actors from foreign countries all all were speaking their own language, and, and everyone there was always someone who was dubbed. So, um, but yeah, kind of like the perfect uh, uh, you know conflagration of uh, of that of that era where you know you had a. Kind of the yeah, the the international co-production uh, that's a great uh, marker of that. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough, Stephen. What what do you got to say about those? Well, I agree with you on the Red Sun. I love that to death. But the other Absolutely. two that you love, um, Mary, what's her name? I would pair that with the Late Show with Art Carney. Yeah, actually, I could see that. Though the late show is a little more light-hearted, but yeah, I could see it. Over the hill uh, uh, protagonist who people underestimate. That's a big thing with me: is underestimation. You know, a hero that's underestimated that still makes it. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. And and what do you yeah. what do you guys think of the projectionist, Steve? Oh, I love it. Oh, Carl. 
Do you know who was supposed to appear in the projectionist in a cameo, but sadly got sick and died right before he could film it? Who's that? Buster Keaton. Oh, shit. <laughs> yeah, it was supposed to be a scene where uh, Chuck McCansen wanted to film silent film. Uh-huh. And then it's supposed to be him actually running into Buster Keaton and them just looking at each other and then running in the opposite direction. <laughs> nice. Oh, yeah. that that would have been something. Okay. So, so Dan, let's get back to your list and finish up your list. And then Wait, I got, I got a couple one more. One last okay, one before Okay, go for it, Steven. Go for it. That would be a sadly underseen horror film of the night of the 70s. Even the print I have looks horrible. And they say they've tried to track down a good print of this, but I don't think it exists, and that's Homebodies. Oh. Oh, fuck oh. yes. Oh. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And don't listen to the trailer on there. This is a very dark, creepy little film about a group of old people who are being gentrified out of their house but they decide to take measures to keep their home, and how it goes mm-hmm. down, how it gets darker from there. And Paula Truman, who played the grandmother uh, in in uh, Outlaw Josie Wales, stars in it. Uh, by the way, do you realize that Home Buddies is the same director who did uh, uh, Baby? Larry Hughes, same director. Yeah. Yeah. Larry Eust, I think, is his name, if I'm yeah, not mistaken. Yeah, Eust, uh-huh. Yes, it is. Uh, uh, so, you, oh, I love Home Buddies. I, I, I'm glad you thought of that, because I should have thought of that. Dan, any comments on, on Home Buddies? Uh, I haven't seen it in a while, uh, but, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, I recall it being a very good film. Uh, saw a mm-hmm. poster for it recently. Um, and uh, just just quickly on the uh, the projectionist, you you have a um, you have a kind of a, a fascination with uh, with uh, Harry Hurwitz, right? Oh, I do. I have a huge yeah. fascination with Hurwitz. He ended up uh, doing um, softcore porn, but some really good softcore porn. Uh, he's done films that nobody's ever heard of. Uh, he's very hit and miss, but when he hits, he hits it out yeah. of the park. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But his best film is by far The Projectionist, no question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, currently, I, I, I'd have to revisit Home Bodies. It's, it's, it's been a while, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's uh, a worthy... Worthy entry on your on your list there. Oh, thanks. Yep, absolutely. So absolutely. So um, so so going on with your list, Daniel. Right, let's let's finish it up here. Okay, so number six uh, to the uh, to the end, I guess. Uh, Play it as it lays, also by Frank Perry. Uh, number seven, Montreal, Maine. Uh, number eight, Desperate Characters. Number nine, The Magic Garden of uh, Stanley Sweetheart. Number ten, 
I kind of cheated. It's a, a, a Sydney Fury uh, showcase of Sheila uh, a, a, a Levine is dead and living in New York. The boys and company see hit and little Foss and big Halsey. And, and, and we should also mention at this point that you actually wrote a book on Sydney Fury. And so I you wrote, did actually, <laughs> yes, you wrote the book. So people, if you're <laughs> listening to this and you're interested in, in, in uh, Sydney Fury, buy Daniel's book. Absolutely. It's valuable on uh, Amazon and such. So where do you want to start as far as those films talking about them? Uh, well, I can I can go from the top. I mean, Play It As It Lays um, is, is it's it's a really good. Uh, for talking about uh, double features, it's a it's an excellent pairing with uh, Puzzle of a Downfall Child. Just kind of like a fractured, uh, disjointedly edited kind of uh, um, portrait of a woman's uh, psyche, I guess. Uh, and in in that case, it's. Uh, Tuesday Weld. It's of course it's a Joan Didion adaptation. It's uh, Tuesday Weld uh, playing the wife of a Hollywood director, uh, and um, I mean to to try to uh, you know explain it or lay it out. It kind of you know defeats it in a way. But it's just uh, uh, just in terms of its its ideas of uh, of of filmic time. I guess it's a really really. Uh, uh, formative film and it was around the era of course that uh uh editors were playing with uh with our sense of uh chronology you had uh Isadora you had uh Slaughterhouse 5 you had uh, uh Two for the Road you had the last movie which in a way is that uh so you have you, you kind of have the emerging sense of directors uh experimenting with their with how they how they use or you know depict time and how they jump around in that in a time frame. Uh, so just on that basis alone, I, I I always get a lot out of seeing uh, played as it lays. Montreal, Maine uh, is a, an independent film uh, shot in uh, um, shot on 16 millimeter by uh, a, a, a Frank Vitale. Uh, and uh, it features um, Alan Bozo Moyle, who would go on to, as a director, uh, he would go on to make Pump Up the Volume, uh, Times Square, uh, and um, The Gun and Betty Lou's Handbag, I think is the other one. Um, but yeah, he, he made a number of uh, Hollywood films later, but early on in Montreal, Maine, he's a writer and actor. And it's just kind of like a Death in Venice type of a tale. Uh, but really, uh, but it's kind of set in... Uh, Kind of the boho artist world of uh, uh, of Montreal um, and uh, the main, I guess, the two parts of the of what was the, I guess, the, the main street, quote unquote, uh, and kind of their their uh, community of weirdos, I guess. Uh, which, uh, so yeah, that's that's really worth tracking down. It might even be on YouTube. Might be. I would. I'm, I can't uh, uh, swear to that, but that's worth seeing. Uh, Desperate characters is a. a Shirley MacLaine uh, film directed by Frank D. Gilroy, who is of course known for the uh, the subject was roses. Um, this is a adaptation of a novel by Paula Paula White, maybe I, I, I should forget her name right now. But it's uh, kind of a upper middle class couple uh, living in a, in a kind of a, a sterile house in Brooklyn, uh, and um, 
kind of a portrait of how their lives are quietly, you know, uh, disintegrating amid this kind of cold, uh, um, cold environment that they've uh, uh, established for themselves. Very much a character piece. Um, and uh, the Magic Garden of uh, Stanley Sweetheart was the film that Andy Warhol said was the best, uh, the best film that that any of the studios ever made about the. Uh, the 60s counterculture um and uh, i'm going to be doing a podcast about that film soon with uh, mike white uh at the projection booth because my friend jared labine uh owns what is what is likely the last uh 35 millimeter print of that film and actually had it uh, uh scanned and uh so there's a really uh just gorgeous uh uh transfer of that film that uh that we're going to be uh talking about uh on uh i think the i think we're recording may 24th and then uh it'll go to air in early june uh but it, it's it features a uh debuting don johnson uh and in, in, in the lead role and the in the title role and it's basically uh he's he's uh, a columbia student and uh he gets mixed in with the uh with the Kind of the free love and drugs, um, you know, kind of uh, thing a thing at that time, and um, you know, so it's kind of just uh, tries to penetrate the 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 60s counterculture scene uh, in New York, uh, you know, in uh, circa 1969 1970, based on a novel written by uh, Robert Westbrook, who was the son of uh, uh, Sheila Graham, who was one of F. Scott Fitzgerald's uh, 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 mistresses um but anyway and he was and the, i guess the novel is very much based on his own uh experiences uh as a young man um and you know <laughs> going through that scene and then, then the last is the uh fury showcase i mean you know and there are there are a couple of, of the films in here that that didn't do well on their original run but have picked up a lot of uh a lot of respect and even clout uh on the uh, years and decades down the line, uh, Sheila Levine, well, as I mentioned earlier, was trashed by the critics of the of the of the of its era. Uh, now, if you look at the Turner Classic website, is nothing but but five star write ups by the by the people who would caught it on the, on the channel uh, a while back, uh, and and just in, just in general, it's gotten a much, it's gotten a really well deserved reappraisal and seeing it in widescreen also is uh, is a must because uh, if you're not seeing that movie in widescreen, you're not really seeing it. Um, so there's the Boys and Company C, which is the precursor to Full Metal Jacket, uh, also with Arlie Ermey, also kind of a, a bifurcated uh, structure, first half in boot camp, last half in Vietnam. I, th- I happen to think that Company C is light years better than Full Metal Jacket. Uh, I don't, I, I, you know, I, I don't think I'm the only one. I just think that Jacket is Kubrick's weakest film in my opinion. Uh, I, I think that Company C is a far better movie. Um, and uh, there's Hit, which is a uh, t- to wit, it's the only uh, epic black exploitation movie. It's nearly two and a half hours long, but it's Billy D. Two hours and nineteen minutes. What's that? Two hours. Two hours nineteen, 19 minutes. minutes. Okay, yeah. So it's it's uh, Billy D. Williams, uh, Richard Pryor, Gwen Wells, uh, Sid Melton. And Janet Brandt, uh, and a couple, a number of other character actors, but uh, they all um, are kind of a ragtag uh, 
citizen militia who were going off to Marseille to kill the, the kingpins of the drug trade uh, and uh, to, to kind of uh, get re- revenge on family members who have OD'd and died. Uh, but uh, just as like a, a Hoxian kind of character piece, I mean, the, the first two hours of the movie almost are, it's just all getting to know these people. Uh, and they're all kind of holed up at this uh, makeshift uh, hacienda in uh, Gig Harbor, Washington. And, uh, you know, you really, like before any action really begins to happen, you really get to know them. And like the, the, the conversation is the thing and the kind of the, the, the interactive nature of the, of the scenes uh, and how they're training for the, for the, for the, the trip to Marseille and everything. So just as like a, an ensemble film, uh, very, very unlike what you what you might uh, uh, expect. Uh, so hit highly recommended. And if you like Richard Pryor, really good early evidence of him as a as a dramatic actor. Uh, and has a number of improvised comic bits as well for good measure. Uh, Foss and Halsey, I think th- th- there have been so many comparisons recently to Brad Pitt's character in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood to the the, the, the mostly shirtless Robert Redford and Little Foss and Big Halsey. Um, you know, you can, you can compare, you know, until the cows come home, but uh, the original movie is just almost this nihilist, uh, you know, existential road movie that predates two lane black cop by a year, but it's two guys and a, and a woman, uh, played by Lauren Hutton. It's Michael J. Pollard and Robert Redford and uh, paired with Lauren Hutton and they're traveling the, the, uh, racing circuit, you know, together. Uh, but it's, it's all the more, uh, uh, extraordinary to note that uh and Halsey predates uh, 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 Tulane Blacktop by, by one year, uh, which you know, is another good d- double feature there. But uh, if you look at those mm-hmm. movies all together, you really see uh, kind of a sensibility and a, a, a kind of prevailing thematic you know, concern that, uh, that I think is in uh, all of Sydney's prime career movies. I'm, I'm not going to make an argument for uh, any uh, you know his later movies like Superman four or whatever Iron Eagle, but uh, the the the, you know, the the prime career movies there's always kind of a, a connecting fibers there. So if you look at all the films that he made in in the decade of of the seventies, you begin to see what really binds them. Okay. Sure. So Stephen, any any uh, comments on any of those films? You go first, Carl, because you know that the City Day Free ones are definitely going to say something about. Okay, well, well, I've got to say at least one thing. Um, I I really don't know most of those films other than the City J Fury, uh, but uh, I've always liked Sheila Levine. I remember seeing it on on uh, HBO, which was a big thing for me in the seventies. And that's why one of the reasons why I'm doing this whole 70s thing, and I did a whole series back a couple years ago, too. But but uh, She Lived Levine, I really like. Um, and, and um, you know, I love Tulane Blacktop. And uh, Little Faust and Big Halsey, uh, uh, very similar. Uh, and I remember liking that, too. I, I, I just think it doesn't... Ca- capture the the real zeitgeist in, in, in terms of the aimlessness uh, as much as Tulane, uh, but uh, and yeah, Come to See a it's a damn it. good movie, uh, and and I do like it better than uh, 
than uh, uh, Full Metal Jacket. Because Full Metal Jacket is basically two films, and we'll let Stephen go into that. Uh, yeah. But go ahead, Steve. Little Faust and Big Halsey, I love that movie. You like, you hate Little Faust and Big Halsey because it's got a plot and it makes sense. You like your seamless <laughs> film. But I love it. I love it how Robert Redford, this is a ballsy for someone who is a big box office star like Redford, starts out as this big hero character. And then by the end of oh, the film, he's him as this asshole. He's a, hor- he's a horrible cat in the film. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. Yeah. It was a really, uh, and, uh, as, I mean, when I was interviewing people about the film, I remember talking to Al Ruddy, uh, and uh, who who was you know, the you know, producer of The Godfather and another another and Longest Yard and everything. So he was the producer on Fawson Halsey, and he made the observation that Redford is is, is a great presence, but he's always been a little uh, antiseptic. And uh, this is a kind of is a bit of a, um, a usurpation of that of that image. It's just like you know, he never played another role like that, where he was a complete yeah he was not, he's an asshole right he's a cad uh, he's a he's a mm-hmm. you know two-timing, you know, con, con man. Uh, he's trying to, he's out to hoodwink everyone and get one over on everyone because, you know, it's, it's like even, even like you know, the little gestures that, that he's, or like the pieces of business that he's given, like uh, a Sidney Fury gave him a, uh, a, a, a toothbrush as a prop. So you always see, like, even, like in off moments, you always see Redford brushing his teeth uh, with, with, a little, with a little dingy brush uh, and uh, you always and like he's often shirtless, and he's like, oh, I'm I'm out of uh, I'm out of cigarettes, damn it! And then he pats he pats his uh, his boobs like they're like they're uh, uh, they're pockets there. Uh, it's just I don't know, it's just <laughs> so effortlessly done almost that you kind of wish that uh, Redford had had uh, um, uh, had kind of you know continued down a path where he would challenge himself a bit more in that regard. Yeah, and his... Hey, Steven, go ahead. It's following as he got caught between two masters. It's too much of a slow-paced caper film for the exploitation crowd. And there's too much exploitation in it for the slow-paced caper crowd. Well, uh, but I it, love I mean, it. Hit is, uh, I mean, Hit, Hit to me is one of my favorite uh, films of... Uh, uh, Sydney's and when I when I was first getting to know him, um, he wa- he was so curious why I kept on rattling on and just uh, spouting off about Hit and how much you know because to him it was just like you know one of the movies of his uh, of that of that time that didn't work so like but he hadn't seen it since then so like I said Sid watch it again and tell me that you know and he watched it again and was like oh my god they just let me go on this this is uh, like uh, uh, he said if they had if they had made it like uh, uh, if, if if it had been a French film, it would have been a hit. If if it had been un film de Sidney Furet, it would have been a it would have been this great art house classic. But uh, because it's me, they don't give a shit, right? But you know, <laughs> but uh, he was he was kind of joking about that. But uh, um, but yeah, he saw it years later and is like, oh, this is actually some good stuff here. Uh, you know, things that he's proud of. So uh, you know, mm-hmm. so I'm 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 ver- I'm very very fond of that film. Uh, just I think it's uh, just as a as a 
what do you anticipate a genre of film to be in that in, in that era? Uh, doing what I think Howard Hawks would have done, which is like Rio Bravo. A lot of the Rio Bravo uh, success story is uh, is is you know the the bits of character business that uh, that we see develop over over the first few acts and then over the first couple acts, and then uh, so that you know you you really uh, and the, the hit uh, operates in, in the same way, in that for the first couple acts, you're, you're you're kind of gathering the team, and then they have to kind of uh, get to know each other, work together, and then there's like and and they become kind of like a uh, you know family unit in a way. It's like another uh, it's a kind of like a crime family, I guess you might call it. But uh, uh, but yeah, I just uh, I'm very very fond of Hit. I, I think Hit is one of one of the better uh, films of his that I think needs a, a, a resurgence of, uh, uh, you know, an audience, you know, uh, resurgence. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And Carl said something about the, well, before I get into Boys and Company, see about Full Metal Jacket being two movies. Yeah, it was, because the second half, which almost no one likes, was directed by Stanley Kubrick. And the first half... <laughs> yeah, well agrees is good was taken over and basically directed by uh Arlie Ermey. Ermey and yeah. <laughs> it's hard and, you know, er, to find the, the, a Vietnam film that doesn't have Arlie Ermey in it or as a consultant yeah yeah, well, I mean, there's a whole thing in my book about uh, which is which I actually verified. It's not some uh, a, 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 a conspiracy theory wherein uh, um, Kubrick tried to uh, tried to blot out Ermi's past. Uh, he wanted he wanted credit for uh, discovering Ermi, so uh, so he tried to uh, I guess negate that Ermi had had any past in in any film before. So even though Kubrick Admitted to loving Boys and Company C, he he, he and, the, and the, his Kubrick kind of entourage uh, pleaded with Ermy not to mention that you had been in this other movie where you where you also played a, 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 a marine drill uh, instructor, um, and uh, you know this you know the, it was a kind of like a cover up of his previous work for the benefit yeah. of uh, of you know so um, not exactly kosher and and if you if you uh, I mean, this is uh, kind of the you know, the fine line between genius and you know whatever, right? Where, where uh, you know I, Kubrick, you know, did any number of things I, I think that were maybe uh, ethically, ethically, you know, uh, questionable or compromised. And uh, if you watch the, 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 the yeah, that, that's true. Yeah, Say it again. But, I mean, My you, favorite you, part you, of Company C, and we're going to be going over about five or so minutes. Sorry, folks is the scene where did Sidney J. Fury know that Kevin Hooks actually had a real switchblade on him? No, well, uh, it was actually uh, Stan Shaw. It wasn't, it wasn't Kevin Hooks. Okay. Yeah. Um, but, um, no, uh, well, no, yeah, well, yeah, it was, it, it was written. Yeah, yeah it, but it, what it, happened it was, was that... Yeah, he had a real switchblade on him, and Ermy didn't know. So when the switchblade came out quick, that's his actual reaction, him jumping back. Holy shit, what the hell is that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> yeah. He, he might not have clued in uh, Ermy to that, but uh, it, it was in, the, in uh, Rick Natkin's uh, uh, script, though. Well, um, he is expecting yeah, a prop it's, it's knife, a common, not a real knife. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, it was a it was a trick. Uh, it's a, it's a, a, a deployed often by directors uh, to get the uh, you know authentic looks of uh, shock and surprise. But uh, yeah, it was just, it was written there. But uh, yeah, Rick Natkin, who uh, who uh, was a young kid, you know, he was just in his early twenties when he co-wrote that with uh, you know with Sid, and he's around still, and you know he's uh, you know he's a he's a he's a real card. He's a really lovely guy, but a real character, you know. <laughs> Okay. And, uh, you need real characters. Oh. Yeah, <laughs> and we've talked before about double features. Well, hit I would put as a double feature with Gordon's War, which is basically the same yeah. plot. Yeah. Only. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, I think hit is Gordon's uh, you know, War is the exploitation. Gordon's War Yeah. Right. <laughs> so and what we're going to do now is part of a trilogy. That means the Vietnam films that come out in the 70s that people need to see, and that is uh, Boys and Company C, Go Tell the Spartans, and The Long Hard Hit. No, The Long, it's the Australian one, The Long Angry Shot, I think. Oh, The Long uh, Angry Shot, that's it. Yeah. That's it. So, before we go, uh, I'm going to just finish up my list real quick, and I'm going to finish off with uh, a last film that we'll talk about uh, that we're going to be doing a watch of. Um, So, I got a couple more here uh, on my list. One is another uh, black exploitation film, which we did a watch of about three weeks ago, uh, and that's Raymond St. Jock's Book of Numbers which right. I love. Uh, um, it's set in, 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 in the 20s and 30s in, in New Orleans. It's about number runners. Uh, uh, and ju- just a really fine film. Great uh, score. Uh, um, can't think of his name right now, but uh, Philip Michael Thomas uh, yeah. from, um, uh, is in it. And 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 just a wonderful, wonderful film, and and Raymond St. Jacques uh, also co-stars, uh, along with uh, Frida Payne, actually, uh, and that's mm-hmm. that's a film I really recommend. Uh, another one is, we all know who William Castle is, and we all love The Tingler, oh, yeah. and we all love these films, but he came out with his last film. This is. Uh, in, in, in 1974, or actually I think Bug might be later, uh, but in 1974 he gave us one of the most weird-ass films I've ever seen in my life starring Marcel Marceau, Philip Klein, and uh, I can't think of, is it Yvonne Chilson, I think? Uh, and, and, yeah. uh, and they are all mimes, and it's a very weird little horror movie called Shanks. It's the only movie yeah. that we have talked about that actually its score was up for an Oscar, which is a whole other yeah. story, which which I'll do at one point or another. Uh, but it was, I it was freaking love porn. this film, and people look at me like I'm insane. Well, you know what? I am, and I'm okay yeah, with yeah. that. 
because well, the ones I, I think you're insane for not liking, and this is my chance to get someone who likes it too, so we can gang up on you. And this is the last, the, the last of the okay. your films, and that would be the great Elmore Leonard adaption, Lolly Madonna XXX. Okay, yeah. so gang up on me. Go ahead. Yeah. yeah, which is on my list. It's an amazing <laughs> film. And it's hard to really talk about the plot of this without spoiling it. Yeah, it's, it's uh, uh, Richard Serapian, who also directed uh, Vanishing Point. Um, yeah, a very interesting career. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's a kind of Hatfield-McCoy type of uh, tale, but it's uh, well worth... Uh, in, in tracking down. And it doesn't go where you. I don't know. I out. thought it was too convoluted. I, I I just it just didn't connect with me. And that's the way it is. I can't I can't really explain more than that. I just I just thought it was too much. Scott Wilson uh-huh. is great in it. Uh, Jeff Bridges is great in it. The guys who played Robert. the head of the families is great in it. Robert Ryan. Yeah, Robert Ryan. Ryan. Well, I love I do love me some Robert Ryan. I do love Robert Ryan. Um, you know, it's not a bad film, but it's not one that 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 I connected. Now, talking about Robert Ryan, okay, and of course in the seventies, he's near the end of his career. There's another gentleman uh, that I love, and particularly from the nineteen seventies on until his death, and that would be Burt Lancaster. And Burt Lancaster mm-hmm. came out with two films. One that he actually co-directed called The Midnight Man, which is 1974. And you yeah, talk about... Yeah, Ron Kibbe. Uh, and and, and that, I, that's a film that needs to be rediscovered. Seriously. Um, it's such a really good noir. And, and uh, uh, he's so good. And Cameron Mitchell... Uh, and everybody in that film is so good, and, and the mystery when 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 it's a, a, a noir, and I don't get it, and I don't see it coming, it's done really well. Um, but even better is the film that Robert Aldrich did, which finally came out a DVD and Blu-ray, uh, and that's Twilight's Last Gleaming, which I think is an absolute stunner. And I cannot believe people don't know that film nearly as well as they should. Uh, and that's yeah. a film where, where Lancaster is a disgraced army colonel who takes over a missile silo so he can uh, uh, blackmail the government into saying why they got into Vietnam in the first place. Yeah. And the, uh, the, the cast is just phenomenal. Burt Young, uh, Richard Widmark, at his oiliest, uh, Charles Durning, uh, Gerald O'Loughlin, just an amazing film. Really good use of split screen, really tense, with an absolute mm-hmm. stunner of an ending. I think it's just brilliant. So what do you guys mm-hmm. think about those three films? Shanks and, and Midnight Man and uh, Twilight's Last Gleaming. No, the Midnight uh, Man and Twilight's you... I mean, the biggest problem with them is they're not the swimmer, and the swimmer is better than them. Frank Perry's better director than those two directors. <laughs> Screw you, Carl. Shut okay. up. Okay. 
Fine, fine. Okay, what about Twilight Slice Gleaming? Same. What do you think of that, Stephen? Okay. Same. Uh, okay. So, so uh, what do you think, uh, Daniel? Uh, I was happy that you listed Shanks when you shared your list uh, with me a couple of days ago. Uh, I think that uh, you know Shanks is just one of the great oddities of uh, of that uh, of that decade. Um, and uh, I like I've uh, actually I think I have Alex North's um, uh, soundtrack on my iTunes, uh, which uh, would, that was Oscar nominated as you mentioned. Um, so, and yeah, by Shanks, the way, I'm, that was actually that was actually a score that he had composed earlier and was rejected for 2001. At least parts of it was. Well, he I didn't uh, know. North, I mean, he he used uh, part uh, most of that uh, uh, rejected music for uh, the shoes of the uh, on the fisherman with Anthony Quinn, um, which uh, if you if you listen, because I, I have the uh, uh, North's uh, rejected score, then I, and then if you play that against uh, shoes, you you'll hear the you'll hear the very the, the, you know, the many. Uh, striking similarities but uh, i think i think he was basically lifting uh from that you know for the rest of his career because i think he was really uh i think that really let the air out of his tires when kubrick uh i don't kubrick didn't even tell him i, I don't think when uh when, when he didn't use his music i think north uh showed up to the premiere and then like where's my music um but uh oh, yeah so I, I think that was i think he was a little uh He's a little, you know, uh, let down by that. So, I, but I mean, that also, uh, if you, his music for Good Morning Vietnam, you know, much later, uh, also features a lot from the uh, the original 2001 uh, North score. So I think he was lifting from that for the you know, for the rest of his days. Um, but um, yeah, uh, he, he, uh, Phase Four, which you, you mentioned, which is a great film, which I, I guess which, which we haven't mentioned about. yet. I was going to end up with that. What do you think, okay. very briefly, about Midnight Man and Twilight Last Gleaming? Uh, Twilight uh, Last Gleaming is, uh, you know, late Aldridge is uh, can be rather sticky for many people, uh, but I, I but it seems that the, that the uh, Prevailing opinion is that uh, Twilight's Last Gleaming is probably the best of the of the later Aldrich uh, dramas. Anyway, I mean, of course, he did uh, you know the, the Frisco Kid, which people love as a comedy. Uh, but uh, I mean, you know, we're talking about you know uh, it's it's surrounded by the you know, the choir boys, which people hate that thing. Um, and uh, you know, he also did um, um, you know. Uh, Films like Hustle and everything, and you know those, those, and you know, all the marbles, obviously uh, as well. But uh, um, but yeah, that, uh, Twilight, you know, Last Gleaming uh, has its cult for sure. There, you know, there's no doubt about it. it. It it really does have a following. I remember for years I was trying to get that movie on VHS when you know you know that was the only edition available was to get it on the key video VHS from the 80s, and you couldn't get the thing without paying like, you know, $40 for it back in the day. Uh, so now of yeah. course it's on, it's on disc and it, it's great. So, but yeah, that, that, that film does have a huge cult, uh, which is, uh, which, you know, is, uh, is heartening because, and, and I think it did well with critics of the time, but it didn't, it just didn't pick up much of a crowd uh, when, right. when it came to audience. Uh, but yeah, I think critics of the time 
uh, appreciated it as a kind of late uh, testament by Aldridge, who was, you know, known for these kind of brawny pictures, you know, these kind of, uh, I mean, you know, yeah, right, right. Which, which, which oddly, I mean, he's a really interesting director in that he would offset these uh, uh, kind of, you know, testosterone laced pictures with films like uh, in the legend of Lila Claire and the killing of sister George. And, you know, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, amidst all these other like brawny movies you have like, these, and then what happened, whatever happened to baby Jane, obviously and everything. So, yeah, it's a very, very it's kind of weird ping pong that that goes on with uh, which with you know, Aldridge's you know, filmography, and you know he of course has right. been uh, studied in great depth and everything. But uh, I I think that the, that, that the uh, prevailing opinion, which is the correct one, is that uh, uh, Twilight's you know Last Gleaming is the is the best of the later Aldridge. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and of course you just mentioned Phase Four. Oh, go ahead, Steve. Finish up the double feature thing. The one that would be great with Shanks would be Defula. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I love yeah. Defula. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, Stephen, we have something happening next Thursday. Yeah. So, why don't we talk about what's happening next Thursday? <laughs> Next Thursday on the KSDAB Late Night Movie, we're going to be doing a live watch of Phase 4. Sorry it's the theatrical version, but for some reason, they don't want... They have a, a new, beautiful, complete print with Bass's original ending, but they don't want to do anything with it, and they won't say why. But But we're going to be watching this on Criterion, and it's an it's, I think the best science fiction film of the seventies. Yeah. Seriously. Yeah. Uh, I yeah, love yeah, this yeah. movie, yeah, and I think it's, it's a brilliant film. Saul Bass's only feature film that he ever did. Uh, he did direct some shorts. Of course, he was better known as a, uh, as a titles person. Uh, and and Criterion has a wonderful um, set of films. That, uh, including Phase 4 and then a number of films that he did titles for uh, that you should all watch. Uh, but Phase 4 is, I think, a tremendous film. Uh, yeah. And it's one that I've loved ever since I first saw it. And I remember seeing it in the in the mid-'70s and telling everyone at college, and that you got to see this, and they're looking at me like, is he out of his mind? Well, I'm sorry. Nowadays it's got a real uh, um, cult, but I still think it's understanding. Yeah. And of course, yeah. You know, I mean, uh, you still I, I don't think, have I the original ending. Go ahead, Dan. I'm you, sorry. Go ahead. No, it's a, no, I was gonna say. I think many of those original posters that Paramount made for the film really, uh, really zeroed in on the kind of the you know uh, drive-in uh, exploitation film uh, type of uh, um, art artwork that <laughs> that might might have uh, been offset by the film uh, aspiration. Yeah, the hand right. with the bloody hand. Yeah, yeah, but. Uh, yeah, that might, that might have been what what people were uh, responding to when you, when you told them to see it. <laughs> but uh, it's well, it's, you, you uh, know what? I think maybe that's what they the thought it was, and I kept telling them that's not what it is. You know, yeah, it's, a brainy, it's one of the most thoughtful movie. science yeah. fiction of that of that era. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a very brainy movie. Probably that's the 
It's the it's the intellectuals, uh, you know, killer ant movie. If you want to call it that. <laughs> oh, oh, absolutely. And the other thing too is that the guy that they did the uh, the micro uh, 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 photography of the ants is uh, the same guy who did the Hellstrom Chronicle. And mm-hmm. so they yeah. have they have some incredible shots of, oh. of, of of ants, and and it's also probably the best role that Lynn Frederick ever had. Who's better known yeah. as as Mrs. Peter Sellers? Mrs. Peter time. Sellers, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Who would have, who uh, if he had if he had been around uh, an extra year, probably they would have likely been divorced. But uh, <laughs> that's neither here nor there. Um, but uh, yeah, I I'm, I'm actually think that they were uh, they were about to uh, split when he when he had his heart attack. Yeah, right. And, and then maybe she talked about that. <laughs> and Carl has the book that. Paramount cut not only cut out the original ending, but it cut out the very last line of the movie, which really would have explained the title of the movie. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's just three yeah. words. No, I mean the the the, the yeah. original ending had a you know, I mean, I, I I really don't quite understand why studios do this because they, are they convinced that they're going to make more money? if they cut out a movie that's already kind of heady and intellectual by cutting out uh, an ending that, that suits that uh, pursuit. I don't, I don't understand what, what's going on in their head sometimes. It's like, Oh, maybe we'll make more money if we cut out the last you know, four or five minutes of this thing. Um, it's just, you know, it's just, I don't know what goes on in their adult, adult mm-hmm. minds sometimes, but uh, it's just another example of many. I mean, Carl, would, don't you agree that you really didn't understand what the title of it meant until you read the novel and you seen those last three words at the end of the book? Well, you know, you know, the thing is, the way they have it set up is this is phase four. So you know, you kind of get the idea that we're going to go on to phase five. Yeah. I mean, granted, yeah, it's not the, the last three words of the novel, which we're not going to say. I'm not going to stomp on any plants here. Uh, no, but, the last three spoken none, words of the novel, not the description. Right. It just began phase. It was supposed to be began phase five, and then bam, right. cut to the credits. Mhm. Yeah, yeah, but but you know, I, this is a film that I think could have a sequel, even even forty fifty years down the line. I think you could do a sequel. Uh, I don't know exactly how you do it, but I, I certainly think about it. I think it's, you know, I mean, the only other science fiction film, which is actually my favorite science fiction film of nineteen, of the 1970s, is Solaris. And I do prefer mm-hmm. the thinking and sci-fi and ones that are sort of grounded in reality or at least in character. Uh, and and this one is just I think it's brilliant. I think the script by Mayo Smith, what they allowed of it, is 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 a really fine script. The acting, Michael Murphy's one of my favorite underrated actors of that era, and he was in everything, including lots of Altman. I mean, I just think it's a great film. Mm-hmm. Okay, so people, and we're going to do that on Thursday, people. So that's going to be a lot down. of fun. Yeah. I want you to take out a piece of paper and write this down. The best sci-fi film of the 70s, according to Carl, is Phase 4. But he also says 
the best film, sci-fi film of the 70s, according to him, is Solaris. So they're tied. Give me a break. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, Dan, uh, any last words on, on phase four? Um, not for now, but, uh, you know, it's a, it's a great film. I'll, I'll say okay. that much. So, so, uh, we're going to end up here real soon. So, so Dan, do you want to just, uh, uh, give everyone, uh, uh, a little, uh, um, uh, sense of what you're doing and what's going on? Like we did at the beginning, just well to remind people. Man. Okay. Um, I'm, um, promoting my movie over on the sky, which, you know, a little, uh, bump in the road because of the current, uh, worldwide crisis. Uh, I'm doing, uh, commentaries for mostly for Kino Lorber, uh, but, uh, a couple other labels as well. Uh, and, uh, I wasn't in, in pre on a, on a show for HBO, but, uh, who knows where that is now. And uh, yeah, that's that's life currently. I'm, I've got some other projects that I'm I've been working on, and you know that's that. Well, well, I, I gotta say, Dan, anytime you you want to do a podcast, just let me know. You know, whatever yeah, you want to do, I mean, Dan. you're more than welcome to come back. I got a question for uh, Dan, and, and we really really appreciate you coming on for yeah. this. Thank oh, you very very much. Absolutely. I got a question for Dan. Uh, Thank you. Go, you go ahead, Steve. You wrote a book on Sidney J. Fury. Yes. Where can you get this said book? Oh, um, it's. Uh, I mean, you can get it on Amazon. Like where, wherever books are sold, uh, there, are, I'm sure there are copies. It's uh, the you know the publisher was uh, uh, Screen Classics, so their they, their their tentacles reach you know quite wide. So it's uh, um, so yeah, just uh, you know you know just look it up. You know, uh, wherever books are sold, you can either order it or you know. Or whatnot, but it's on Amazon, it's on Barnes and Noble, wherever. Okay. Well, good. Definitely buy buy his books. There's no question about it, guys. And again, thank you very, very much, Dan, for being on. Thank you, Stephen. Do you want to give us a, a a quick rundown on what's coming up on 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 uh, uh, for us? I've only got one thing to say, and that's. Two episodes before episode 500. 498 is Paris, Texas on Thursday. Mm. 499 is The Killing of America on Sunday. Very nice. And And 500 will be our interview with... uh, well, more clues. We'll reveal the name probably on Saturday's show. Uh, one of the great Aussie exploitation directors by way of France. Huh? <laughs> yep. Yeah, you know, we'll we'll have a communion. You know, uh, on Sunday yeah. I'll go to communion, and then uh, uh, perhaps you know, you know, we could talk about kangaroos or something like that. I don't. I'm not yeah. sure. I think I might know who it is. But we're very pleased to have him on. It's going to be yeah. really good. Okay, and and on Friday we've got uh, uh, on DLN 
uh, uh, we're going to be uh, uh, doing, uh, uh, Adam Perens is going to be doing Catholic Ray Mission and talking about Buffy. So that is on on Friday. That's what we're having at DIN. And again, thank you very much, Daniel, uh, uh, for being on with us and, and taking the extra time. Uh, and uh, let's all just say have a good night, everyone, and thank you very much for listening. Okay, good, good have night, a good, have good one. Good night. Tip the waiter. Oh, absolutely. Tip the waiter. <laughs> all right. Take care. <laughs>